0: Came to chat. I need to talk to you.
1: but we have to go back down the hatch. It's the Lost Rewatch podcast here on Post Show Recaps. Hello, everybody. I am Josh Wiggler. I am joined here by Mike Bloom, and we need to talk to you about the House of the Rising Sun. Mike Bloom, how you doing?
2: I'm uh, I'm doing good, or as I should say...
1: Good. Doing very soon. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. Look at you.
2: Yeah, I've studied up on my Korean, and so maybe I should redo my introduction, Josh.
1: Hello. What is you this? Yours.
2: What is that? It's me. It's, I, it's me. I'm speaking Korean. How did you change your voice like that? So <laughs> you don't have that low register, Mike. This is a I'll lie. I'll be honest. I hired a decorator, <laughs> and, but they secretly were teaching me Korean so oh that I gosh. could eventually join a Lost podcast and talk about the Kwan's so I love to death.
1: Oh my gosh. Okay, so this is a very exciting episode of Down the Hatch, which, as you know, because you have been listening to every single episode, is a spoiler-filled Lost Rewatch podcast, where we are going through every single episode in the Lost catalog and talking it in a front to back, spoiler filled way. So if you've not seen Lost all the way through, you are in danger here. And that's the spoiler warning. Uh, But you should be excited because we have not talked too much about the Quans, about Sun and Jin. uh, But we're going to talk about them a whole heap and lot today. And I can't wait because these are two of Mike Bloom's very favorite characters on the show. I obviously love Sun and Jin, but nowhere near to the level that Mike Bloom has professed to love these two characters in the past. So I have a feeling we're in for a really fun show today.
2: Yeah, this is gonna be very, very interesting because I think people have certain images about Jin and Sun, uh, you know, certainly in the beginning of the series, particularly how Jin is portrayed. I think in the middle, especially once they get separated pretty much through seasons five and six, uh, we sort of regard them as separate characters, not really knowing what to do with them. They come back together, have this simultaneously sweet yet angering reconciliation and death, considering the circumstances. But I've always been super interested in their relationship. As I mentioned last time, there's this really cool dynamic that Lost does of bringing pairs onto the island that know each other from off the plane, as it were. And Jin and Son is one of them. And, you know, even comparing this to in translation, which is the Jin episode, and getting to see things from both perspectives looking back on all the sun stuff all the flashback stuff in this episode uh knowing the complete picture also paints things in a really really interesting light not to mention this episode has a buttload of things in it you know you have a buttload gin- of things yeah buttload of bees exactly a you shirtload got the gin- of bees you got the Jin and Sun stuff. You got the, the shirtload of bees and the lack thereof of shirts. We have Jack's decision to move the, to the cave and the, the cave beach schism that's about to occur. We have the beginning of Charlie's withdrawal storyline that's going to start to really take effect with Locke's intervention. So, this is a surprisingly packed episode. I know it's tough coming down from the one two punch that is Walkabout and White Rabbit, but I think this is another strong episode, in my opinion.
1: Listen, almost every episode of Lost is going to be a strong episode, in my opinion. Like, when we get to the 4.2 stars later on in this episode, I think it should come as no surprise that I'm going to rank this a three or higher, and I think that that's going to be the case for most episodes of Lost for me. Um, but I agree that this was a this was a better episode than I remembered, um, and you know I, I regard this episode fairly fondly. Um, but there is more in here that I that I had uh, then I had given credit for coming back into it. In this rewatch. So we'll talk about all of that as Mike outlined a lot of different events to, to survey with with you know series lasting ramifications, like in the case of the Adam and Eve stuff. I think that'll lead to an interesting discussion here today. Uh, of course, at some point deep into the podcast, we are going to be getting into what you have for us, you the listener, uh sending in your feedback to us each and every week, which we appreciate so much for our 1516 others section. You can send your feedback if you do not know how at down the hatch at post show Recaps.com is our email address. You could also tweet at us. I'm at Round Howard. Mike is at A Mike Bloom. Type and make sure you are tagging at post show recaps as well. But the email address is definitely the ideal format for your feedback. A reminder that we are recording these podcasts on Tuesdays, so if you can get your feedback in by Tuesday mornings, ideally even Monday evenings, that is uh, that is the, the best way to make sure that you're making it onto the show. Uh, though if we don't get you in time for the episode in question, uh, we do tend to pick up leftover questions for the next episode, so you should be fine. Uh, just send those questions in, your comments, your feedback, your ratings for the 4.2 stars sections, which we will get to later on this week. And of course, Subscribe if you have not done so already. Post showrecaps.com slash down the hatch to get us on Apple. Uh, but you can find us on your podcast app of choice and your ratings and reviews. Still so appreciated. You guys are being way too kind in all of that. And it's just it's it's such a delight. Um, mm-hmm. And speaking of a delight, Mike, uh, this podcast is coming out just shy of the 15 year anniversary of lost September 22nd 2004 when lost premiered this podcast dropping within 48 hours of that date uh how are you planning on celebrating the 15 year anniversary Mike
2: I'm gonna rock back and forth holding my license encyclopedia singing five for fighting <laughs> the entire day that's a
1: good that's a good, good way to do it uh I am going to try to find a cave. Uh, and and lead as many of my friends to it as possible, and get unreasonably angry when my wife decides not to join me.
2: Mm, make sure you're
1: shirtless while you do it. I will definitely make sure I'm either shirtless or wearing some sort of button down without sleeves, which is an awful look. But I will I will <laughs> do it to channel my inner Jack Shepard. All right.
2: I, I I wonder if Michael was the real trendsetter in this regard, and Jack's like, oh yeah, we can do that. Great. Well, and so <laughs> Michael the, the Michael that really look. made its way around the island. Yeah,
1: I mean, Michael's going to really rock that look later on in the series. Um, all right. Let's go forth into the jungle. Let's talk about House of the Rising Sun, which is directed by Michael Zinberg, his only credit as a director on Lost. It's written by Javier Grio Mark Swatch, who is a, a, one of the, the stalwart writers of the original run of Lost and a man that we are quoting a lot as we are pulling the curtain back on behind-the-scenes details. This is an episode that aired on October 27th. 2004, not quite the 15 year anniversary as we are recording this. And it is an episode that prominently features both Sun and Jin. But as far as the centricity, the flashback award does go to Sun Quan. Uh, and Mike, we're finally getting our Quan on.
2: Yes, let's flip that quan switch from quaff to quan. <laughs> to qu- <laughs> oh,
1: no. So, Mike and I have talked about Sun and Jin in the past in a dedicated podcast back on Lost Lives, which is the proto down the hat, a robust uh, catalog of podcasts in the lost lives. Uh, 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 the lost lives ether. However, you're going to find that uh, it still exists. We know that one listener at least went back and listened to our previous Jin and Sun conversation before this current one we are about to have. I have not gone back and listened to that, so apologies in advance if we end up being repetitive in any regards. And I don't know if I should say sorry or just kind of shrug in the event that our our takes. Wide Wildly differ from, from what they once were. Certainly a possibility for me.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, it's also... We talked about this during our uh, our preview podcast that, you know, the last time we, we talked about these episodes was four years ago. A lot has changed in both of our lives since then. And the great thing about Lost is that characters are at such different stage of their lives that every time you go back, you notice something or maybe a, a character resounds with you differently. One of the reasons why I fell in love with Sun and Jin is the very first time I watched it, I wasn't exactly... Uh, burning the a torch for them as much as I am now. And I think it's because when I was rewatching those episodes uh, around the time that Lost Lives came back, it was around the time that I was about to get married. And admittedly, the first run Lost Mike Bloom was uh, not a heartless romantic or heartless, a passionate romantic, uh, as he might be today, that, you know, there is something about a marriage that a couple even though it might be on the rocks at the outset that has a deeply seated love for each other uh figuring things out in the course of this chaotic sometimes maniacal island i think is something that's always really interested me their relationships has been one of the ones that i've always been drawn to uh just because of the history behind it and how that past translates to the present on the island and also the future, quite literally, in the way that, you know, some things transpire.
1: All right. so one of the things that we've been doing here as we've been reaching uh, the character-centric episodes for the first time for some of these players is we've been going back to the series Bible and seeing what was written about them. Uh, What were the bare bone essentials of these characters before they started getting really fleshed out over the course of the series? Uh, So let's, let's, before we even get into the summary of the episode, I think let's set the table in that way. Uh, This is what was written about uh, Sun in the original series Bible that was concocted after... The pilot. This is what it says. The daughter of a wealthy South Korean auto parts magnate, Sun went to college and fell in love with free-spirited fellow student, Jin. After their, <laughs> after their marriage, Jin changed, eventually becoming harsh and distant as he relegated Sun to give up her own aspirations in favor of a more traditional life. In other words, a glorified servant. This forced Sun to devise an exit strategy. For the past few years, she has secretly been learning English, which is in capital letters for some reason. They Uh, really
2: want to make sure that, like, I'm surprised for the John Locke when it's like, he's in a wheelchair. Yeah,
1: Yeah, Sun has been learning English. (laughs) Uh, Planning to ditch gin in Los Angeles to stay with a cousin. Sun's skills with Eastern medicine may just be her ticket to a new life. The plane crash has shattered Sun's plans, but not her resolve. Now freed of the cultural and familial chains which have kept her passive, Sun's evolution as an independent woman has officially begun gun
2: wow okay so obviously a couple of interesting tenets that obviously stuck around that seems to be a recurring theme with some of these series bible proverbs i guess i'll call them uh from the book of sun but i cannot imagine jin kwan as like a hippy dippy free spirit college student that sun falls in love with well, that being said, I mean,
1: we are, uh, not treated to Jin's, like, progress during the three years that he lives in the seventies before everybody returns to the island. Uh, and in that time, I mean, he learns how to speak English fluently. It is like the, like, the, the, the very floral Dharma, like, uh, peace, love, uh, make, make love, not war years. Uh, so you, you gotta wonder, like, how hippy dippy did Jin get, especially like hanging out with Sawyer? I'm sure they had some of that sweet, sweet Dharma Kush. Uh, You know, passing around the barracks. Uh, So I think maybe Jin being a uh, a free-spirited
2: student actually is (laughs) something that probably happened just off screen. Yeah, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Well, I'm so glad that Jin took the time to learn English.
1: <laughs> eventually, eventually. Uh, this isn't a Jin flashback episode, but since we're talking about Sun and we will be talking about Jin so much, uh, do you want to, should we read from, from Jin's passage from the series Bible just to, to get both of those on the record here?
2: Yes, because I want to find out how he turned up in Korean Sarah Lawrence, apparently.
1: (laughs) All right, so this is what they wrote about Jin. Jin was born into an impoverished family in a fishing village in southern Korea. After meeting Sun, the spirited daughter of the most powerful auto magnet in the country, Jin fell deeply in love. Unfortunately, due to a fierce class system, Sun's father refused to give his permission for the two to marry, unless, of course, Jin was willing to play The result was a Faustian deal. Jin promising to keep Sun squarely within the strict confines of Korean society in exchange for a high-paying, high-ranking job. While the agreement afforded Jin VIP treatment, it left Sun betrayed. Jin is preoccupied by what he considers a far greater betrayal. His wife's Inability to conceive! Oh and, I, and I shout that because it's all in caps. What is inability wrong with to this conceive. Person? I don't know. There's really uh, lots of exclamations here. They really want to stress the big shock points. Don't
2: uh, tell this person your secrets, whoever never, wrote this, they're They are shout going them. to put it in all caps. They're going to
1: shout them from the volcanic rooftops.
2: On the island, his own
1: inability to communicate with the others is balanced by his knowledge of the ocean and his knack for capturing marine life for food. But when he realizes he must now. Rely on his wife. He must choose between attempting to regain her love or fall prey to the dangerous allure of the island's dark influence. Okay, so those are the early early sketches of Sun and Jin. Just just sweeping over that, Mike, what holds true for you from like the original premises of these characters across the series? And what do you feel like they they like pitched out here that never really caught fire?
2: Well, I mean, if I'm looking at Sun's Exit strategy. We find out in this episode, obviously, it was not get on the plane. Fly to Los Angeles and you know ditch uh, Jin in L.A. In fact, that was Jin's plan, as we'll find out in dot 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 in translation for him and Son to escape Mister Pake's grasp by hiding out in California in America. Uh, I also don't know about Son's skills with Eastern medicine. I can't remember if that's a big thing. She she does end up.
1: Um, she assists. She assists Jack during the uh, first of all during Boone when when Boone. That's right during during Boone's
2: attempt at. uh, uh, resuscitation but
1: also as soon as confidence man right like she's the one who eventually uh helps jack uh with Shannon shannon's asthma uh she's able to like uh, oh, right yeah
2: she has she yeah. wads up the leaf and puts it in her mouth to chew on
1: right so i think that there's a lot of times where she is at least uh if if not performing like chief surgery uh you know she is like the most competently capable person to assist jack at least until juliet shows up
2: yeah, so I would say though I don't know if necessarily the whole thing about you know uh, Jin forcing Sun within the confines of Korean society is necessarily something that was focused on. I think it's more so focused on their relationship than how does Sun exist in the uh, maybe the more male centric Korean society. I feel like something that they really underline both in these problems, even though they didn't put it in caps, are uh, is the classism of it all. And that's something I've always really enjoyed about the Sun and story as well. It feels like the only Lost story that really talks about that sort of, you know, uh the the uh, the division of the classes. And the fact of the matter is, once they get to the island, that doesn't really exist anymore. But to sort of see, like, you know, this unlikely romance between a, a rich girl and a poor boy is a cool idea in terms of a romantic story, and also says a lot, and also drives a lot of Jin's volitions, in terms of, you know, how can you exist in a society that favors men as the leaders of the household when you are so so much lower in terms of financial status than your wife which i think is another reason why jin causes uh, makes this as they say faustian deal so i feel like that's the big tenant that's held uh, throughout this. Also, obviously, there are fertility issues, but it is right. on Jen's part, not on Son's.
1: Yeah, but I mean, he's lied to about it, right? Because the right. doctor's like, if I tell Jen, he's gonna break my kneecaps. I can't tell him. Um, but I think it's interesting that they they have that. On the map already at this point, that a fertility issue is going to be a fairly big deal, and it makes you wonder how much they knew that they were gonna they were gonna get into that territory that there was uh, difficulty on the island conceiving children uh, that that tends not to work out very well, and that's gonna be a big part of why Claire becomes a person of interest this season, and it's eventually gonna tie in pretty importantly, uh, at least in the Sun and Jin uh, storyline, vitally. Uh, mm. So I think I think that's I think that's cool that it, that that's. That that's in here already. Um, before we even get in to the summary, we do have a note here, uh, some feedback that we got from Trevor Roberts, uh, intrepid listener of Down the Hatch, and I think that it's just a good tone setter for as we are about to embark on the love story of Jin and Son. Maybe not so much of the love uh, through this early portion of Lost, but Trevor writes in and says, This series was airing when my now 20-year marriage was in its infancy stages, and the often tragic but just as often uplifting love story of Son and Jin. Well, it would and still does make me cry like a little girl. Uh, So I I love that. and I do think that there is something that is just... There's a lot of uh, emotional fragility to the Sun and Jin storyline that I think I tap into more now as an older viewer of Lost, uh, you know, when when I uh, when I was watching the show at the at the outset, the first couple of years of the show, uh, I was you know I was single. There was a serious relationship wasn't even on the mind. Season three rolled around, and I was embarking on what would you know end up being the relationship that has defined my life, my my marriage to Emily. Uh, and I, I think watching Sun and Jin now these days, as a married person, I do have uh, I do have a I do get the feels in a way that I don't think that mm-hmm. I got all the way the first time through. And it'll be fun to chart here uh, as we as we talk about Sun and Jin throughout Down the Hatch.
2: Yeah, I think your life invariably changes when there is someone else in your life who, for lack of a better term, you have to care about. Someone else who you really need to think about each and every moment and support and keep secure no matter what that means. And I think at the end of the day, that is what drives Sun and Jin's relationship. It's just a matter of, for lack of a better term, communication. It's a matter of them withholding certain pieces of information from each other and how that still buys into this idea of securing and supporting one another, even if it leads to their own degradation.
1: Yeah, absolutely. All right, let's talk about it. Let's get into the episode itself. This is House of the Rising Sun, and we open on an eye because, of course, we open on an eye, as we so often do, and it is the eye of Sun Quan, uh, and there's beautiful music playing. There's this like uh ethereal music from Michael Giacchino, this glorious score that is that is just like so serenely playing in the background and really matches sort of uh you know, the sort of like loose serenity of the moment, you know, like she's sniffing a flower. Uh, she's off by herself. And then it starts getting interrupted as Jin is just like he's he's off fishing. Sun is having like what we perceive at the time to be this these like miscommunication issues where she sees other people talking and like the audio quality is like a little bit foggy to to get you into the sense of like, oh, she doesn't know what everybody is talking about. Of course we know better, uh, having gone through the full episode and the full extent of of Lost. But very quickly, from her point of view, we settle on Jack and Kate. And I think that this is something that I had forgotten about House of the Rising Sun is, even though this is a Sun flashback episode, it's just as much, and maybe more so, there's like a the island story is the A-plot. Um, mm-hmm. Where, you know, it's this idea of like, should we stay or should we go? Should we go to the caves or should we stay to stay at the peach? Uh, and that begins here with Jack and Kate basically right away as they are preparing for a hike into the jungle with Charlie and Locke. And Kate is already viciously mocking Jack for his tattoos.
2: Well, now considering when we read about the proverb from Jack last week, this was something that was very prominent in the character intro. But I feel like, son, I'd be like, well, maybe... Now I kind of wish I didn't need to know English because I don't necessarily need to watch these two. Everyone else, unfortunately, has to be privy to these two flirting with one another. That's another thing that I think we forget about is... This is, I think, the first outright dalliance into a Jack and Kate perspective romance. It's going to be on the rocks very quickly by the end of this episode, at least temporarily speaking. But at this moment, they're getting real cushy with one another to the point where, you know, as Charlie says, they now have a quote unquote inside joke about Jack's tattoos and inability to fly kites.
1: Yeah. I know that we we make fun of Jack for his tattoos a lot. We've already gave given him a little bit of guff for this earlier in the podcast. But I just have to stop down for a moment to see the shirt is awful. The shirt that Jack is wearing is awful. Uh we've really downgraded from like the Doctor Survivor Buff to this like sleeveless red checkered button-down shirt. And it's a horrible look on Jack that he rocks occasionally, and I just hate it. And I feel like I should just be out here in front as we've been on like lost fashion police. Uh, watch. I think this is one of the worst Jack Shepard looks. Is this shirt he's wearing in this episode?
2: It looks like he's going to a party. <laughs> Lumber <Jack Shepherd. laughs> lumberjack themed fraternity.
1: Lumberjack Shepard.
2: Lumberjack Shepard. I think that's the look he's going for. He's like, he's, I can. He I'm needs a leader. A
1: flashback now. beard. Why does he, <laughs> that would make yeah. it so much better? Listen, I'm
2: the leader now. I must. I. I'm like Paul Bunyan. I can fell trees, Kate. You can be my babe.
1: Oh my god. So yeah, lumberjack Shepard is happening, and it's awful, and I hate it. Uh, and Kate's like, I don't get the tattoos. I don't understand the tattoos. Uh, and she's like, I don't I didn't know that spinal surgeons were so hardcore. And Jack's like, oh, yeah, I'm hardcore. You have no idea. You have no idea how hardcore I am.
2: Yeah. And then uh, Charlie refers to this as verbal copulation.
1: Yeah. And somewhere further down the beach, uh, Ronnie Roundhouse's uh, ears <laughs> are perking up
2: he's like, ooh, well, I don't think he knows what that word means. So maybe he just, they sound sexy enough that he's like, all right, I gotcha. Yeah,
1: he's feeling it. He's feeling it. Uh, So they're going to go out on a jungle trek with the great white hunter, John Locke. uh, And Charlie is going to immediately feel like, even though there's four of them, he's probably feeling a little third wheelie. Uh, because...
2: Yeah, because Locke's just a wheel that's completely off.
1: He's a motorcycle. He's a unicycle, right? Locke's
2: <laughs> a unicycle. He's, he's just... <laughs> just
1: a badass, poor-hunting unicycle <laughs> uh, riding off into the jungle on his own, and Charlie hates that, uh, that Jack and Kate already have inside jokes. He goes, how absolutely wonderful for you both. Uh, yeah, is this so is
2: great. a very fun Charlie episode. I think after... And also a little bit of jealousy. You know, he struck out with Shannon. I think he's trying very slowly with Claire. We'll see him really slow play that surprisingly so over the course of the first season but you know he was the thirstiest among them even though everyone's pretty thirsty right now which is why they're getting all those water bottles from yeah. the uh, from the waterfalls
1: yeah okay so they're gonna go off to the caves to scove out the caves and get some water meanwhile sun is gonna watch them walk off Jin is now like disrupting her moment of serenity by smashing a fish <laughs> against the wing of a plane. Listen, Mike, I obviously, listen, you and I have some limited experience yeah. in the ocean. <laughs> a smidge. We're more Quan fish.
2: than we were about, you know, a year ago. Yeah, but
1: even then, we are much more Hurley and Charlie than we are Quan when it comes to catching fish. In the ocean, I think we're much more likely to step on a sea urchin and need to have our feet peed upon, uh, than we are to catching any fish, uh, on a deserted island. So who am I to judge against Jin, who is the expert fisherman? Uh, putting out the call right now, the fish signal is flaring up in the air. If you're a fisherman or a fisherwoman, or if you are, if you a are a fishmonger, a fishmonger of any kind, and if you can explain to us in the feedback session section for next week why Jin is just ruthlessly smashing a fish against the wing of a plane, is he like? Is he eviscerating the guts? Is that what he's doing? Like, is he like, is he adding so much like uh, velocity and force? Listen, you know, I I skipped uh, astrology uh, or astronomy rather to the point that I just called it astrology. Yeah, I was
2: gonna say maybe that maybe that's why you just didn't know what the course was the entire time. And
1: I I am the son of a scientist, so I really ought to know science better. Uh, is there a scientific method to why Jin is destroying the fish? so that he will be able to gut it more easily. That is my current hypothesis. But if you, listener, are a Fisher person, please let us know because out of context... Jin just bashing the fish against the wing of a plane is so needlessly aggro. <laughs> that
2: yeah, it just needs some help here. <laughs> I mean, maybe, maybe Jin is flexing for what he's about to do to Michael. Yeah, you know, that's maybe, right. maybe it's like a warm up act, like how Rocky would punch up side yeah. beef to face down Apollo Creed.
1: Yeah, like he, this is him running up the stairs, right? He knows he's about <laughs> to head into a huge fight, so he, he just needs to jack himself up. Yeah, um, I'm, here, I'm here for Quankey. Yeah, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. All right, we get our first flashback, and it's this cocktail reception where Jin is a waiter and he's serving Sun uh, some champagne and he has a napkin, which clearly has a note on it. And I, I've always loved that scene. Like it immediately just illustrates the dynamic between these two. Um, this scene, as well as many other scenes throughout Lost and even the scene later on in the episode where Jin's going to go to Mr. Paik to ask for son's hand in marriage. Uh, it's filmed at the Bioto Inn Temple. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, on Oahu in Hawaii. I've been lucky enough to, to visit this location a couple of times, actually. It's gorgeous it's stunning it, there's really it, it's no surprise that lost wanted to film here as much as it possibly could
2: have you uh cosplayed by bringing emily champagne
1: no i haven't uh i really ought to there's not a there's a non-zero possibility that emily and i will find ourselves there again someday uh you will have to remind me to bring the champagne uh at that point there is a pagoda uh where uh much like Jin and Sun, we could secretly meet and, and mm-hmm. plot to run away. Uh, although in, in our case, I don't know where we'd be running away to since we're already Americans. Uh, but that's the plan that Sun and Jin are talking about when they meet up. They want to they wanna get out of here. They want to leave. They want to go to America. Jin doesn't want to do this. He doesn't want uh, to just elope and leave. He wants to do this the traditional right way because he is a man of tradition.
2: Yeah. I mean, considering, I think, how non-traditional the relationship is, I think it makes sense from Jin's perspective. He still is uh, part of Korean culture at the end of the day, and I think he wants to hold to that. Can we just stop down and talk about how freaking awesome it is that there's an entire set of characters whose flashbacks are... Don't have one iota of English in yes, them.
1: Yes, yes, that is just.
2: I know that you know. Orange is the new black is another show that really brings in a lot of multicultural aspects. But for a 2004 network TV show, that is awesome. That is so unconventional to just have, especially in episodes like this, at least a third of your airtime. Just be pure subtitles with Korean lines over them. It's it's a really cool thing, and it makes you feel more lived in the moment than have to be like, oh yes, you know they're speaking English, even though I guess we're to assume that you know they're speaking Korean or they just happen to know English so well that they can talk in both languages.
1: I I really love that. We're gonna get into the portrayal of Korean culture on the show later on in the podcast, but it is it is worth noting right now. Like the the subtitles for Korean uh, really only come out. When it's like Sun and Jin talking to each other or between two Korean characters or multiple Korean characters. The subtitles are not present when it's Sun and Jin talking in the company of the other survivors of the plane. It's only when they're together so that we're like invited into their headspace. I think that the way that the show paints this is so beautiful. Um, you know, we we're going to do the eight sounds, we're going to we're going to do it in this section again. I think that that's going to be a permanent move. That seems to be a popular decision that we did uh in the last episode. And I I certainly like it a lot for flow. Uh and even though this is a Jin and Sun centric episode, we're not going to call too much upon uh the scenes in which they are speaking Korean to each other. We will make an exception to that. Um but I I I just have to say it's even without understanding the language, which apparently you do now, Mike. I, 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 did, I didn't know that you had taken, uh, you, you'd become fluent in Korean in the time since we last spoke to each other. Each other, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, th- I think that the, I think that the. Just the, the like the emotional reactions um, between these characters, and the facial expressions, and the inflections in their voice tells you so much about their dynamics. I don't think that enough is said about Yunjin Kim and Daniel Day Kim as actors. They mm-hmm. are astonishing performers, uh, and so much of what we love about these characters, it, you know, comes from the writing. Uh, but but as with as with just about everything here. On Lost, for me, it all starts with performance. That's what drives the character, uh, and it's just it's it's exceptional here. This scene where they're talking to each other about how they can't run away. Uh, Jin wants to make her father understand. He has a flower for her, and and Sun's face just like it it just like it curls up into this beautiful smile, just being so touched by the moment. And Jin saying, "I wish this was a diamond." Uh, and as we come to find out from Sun uh, through the episode. Like it she doesn't need the diamond. That's not what she wants. She wants this stuff. She wants the flower from from Jin. Um, and it's just it's it's driven so perfectly by the performances. It's just it's I can't say enough about how great they are.
2: Yeah, I mean they. I and it makes me a little sad that for the latter half of the series they're separated because they also work so well off yeah. of one another to the point where I mean uh, for lack of sounding obtuse you look at the last names at first like you're like wait are they a real life married couple. Because they just fit in so well together. I mean, on that note about the flower, though, it goes back to what I think is a really apropos first line in the Jin and Sun flashbacks, which Jin's first words to Son are, would you like some champagne? Yeah. And I think it's very indicative of the fact that this is a guy who feels that he knows what his wife wants and needs. He certainly makes assumptions based on her background And her class status, and he's he says, you know, no matter where I'm coming from, it is my duty to provide that for you, and I'm going to. And I think that's unfortunately what's going to get Jin sort of trapped to do some things that he doesn't want to do. But that's, uh, you know, that fills in his immediacy to say, or his adamancy to say, I'm going to give you a diamond no matter what. Even though to your point, Sun says I don't necessarily need that. I might have grown up rich, but I fell in love with you for you, not because of any sort of price tag that might be attached to you. Yeah,
1: it's that Faustian deal that's going to drive Sun to
2: learn English. <laughs> uh,
1: I also like that the, the first scene we ever see of Jin and Sun as a couple in flashback form, uh, Sun is drowning in champagne, and the last time we will see them, uh, in their mortal form at least, they will just be drowning, period.
2: There might be a little bit of champagne in that sub, we Maybe. don't know.
1: We don't know. We don't know. Okay, well, the beautiful moment is ruined when we smash back into the present, and Jin is all tweaked out. He's done smashing the fish, uh, and he just slams his foot down on one of these plants that Sun is cultivating. He ruins the flower, which is a, a great dichotomy from the beautiful flower he gifted Sun way back in the day, and he just he runs out, and we see Michael and Walt, who are walking down the beach. Michael notably wearing a new watch, which I think you it's a bit of an eyesore on the rewatch uh the watch is uh that you notice like oh there it is i should have noticed it the first time uh but Jin sees it and Jin is just gonna he's gonna tackle michael and just start kicking the ever-loving snot out of them oh you like even like God. smashes walt out of the way and everyone's screaming and you get the great moment of sun screaming at the top of her lungs as Jin is like starting to drown Michael I think like this is aggressive even for Jin who's like a you know a, a capable fighter. Uh, this is uh this is too much.
2: Well, here's my theory about it. And you know, far from me to be a huge Jin defender because I think especially in the first half of season 1 he's not shown in the best light. Purposely so. He's in that Sawyer category of like, "Hey, he's a cad, but he'll you know, he'll come around on you." But I mean, I wonder let's remember in, in Exodus When, you know, he gets accosted by that guy in the Hawaiian shirt in the bathroom who essentially, you know, kind of spooks Jin into thinking that, like, people around him might be affiliated with Paik without him knowing it. And that very much puts him on edge for this plan of him really trying to escape under his thumb. I mean, could it be a thing where, you know, we'll talk more about uh, Sun feeling like, oh, it's an honor thing for Jin to have the watch. Could it be that Jin's just, like, frightened beyond his life that if he loses that watch, somebody's going to notice and might take it out on him and her, that he is just so paranoid that Paik has infiltrated the people around him, that there's a very chance he could suffer for the consequences, even in the dire circumstances of them being stranded on an island. Look at you siding with Jin over a fellow Michael, Mike Bloom. (laughs) To Uh, be fair, uh, this fellow Michael isn't exactly... The the MVP points, I think, speak for the fellow Michael.
1: Yeah, sure, sure, sure. You know I love Michael, but uh, I don't think that they were necessarily... Unfair. I like the theory. I think that's good. I think that you still see a lot of these people behaving in ways of, like, what if we get rescued any day now? Uh, and and certainly, Jin does not know anything about the, the radio transmission, so he has every reason to think. I mean, he doesn't know much about anything. He has not been communicated with, yeah, really, at all. Uh, so I, I like that. I think, like, if he's, like, just, like, hyper-paranoid, uh, that Michael Par- that Harold Parano, uh, <laughs> that he has this watch, and, like, if they're going to get rescued, and he's going to need to get the watch back, uh, that works for me um all right after the credits uh we see uh we, we return immediately to this brawl on the beach and it's Said and sawyer who are going to come sprinting in from out of nowhere to stop Jin because nobody else is doing anything gawkers be gawking
2: mike gawkers you have you learned your lesson somebody died because of you the blood is on your hands you are not you can't wash it off like Jin. And right now, someone is killing someone in front of you!
1: Yeah, yeah. Dude,
2: they're, you're like, no, number 50 to 1, do something!
1: It's unbelievable, it's unbelievable. Is it too early to already uh, issue a demerit on the Gawkers? They're clearly losing, uh, they're they're getting another LVP point this
2: week. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 a spoiler alert, they absolutely are. Quite frankly, <laughs> maybe splitting them is going to make things even worse, because now we have yeah. twice the amount of Gawker points to give out. But yeah, I mean, Gawkers are like... 0 oh, for 2 right now. Though I do love the unlikely pairing. I mean, these were two guys in Sawyer and Saeed who had their own beachside brawl the first couple of days, and now they're the ones that are partnering up to, uh, to break it all up. Maybe f- foreshadowing Sawyer's uh, sideways career as a cop.
1: Yeah. I mean, listen, the good news is these gawkers are basically all going to die. So they're going to get what's coming to them eventually. You know, They should have said something. If you see something, yeah. you say something, or you end up getting flaming arrows uh, shot in your chest by time-traveling
2: others. That's really what the poster should say.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's the poster for, for Lost. Uh, but Sawyer, Sawyer and Saeed teaming up. Actually, uh, you know, Sawyer actually doing something helpful. Uh, and he, like, throws Saeed the handcuffs when Saeed's like, give me the handcuffs, the marshal's handcuffs. And Sawyer, like, doesn't put up any fight. Uh, and I feel like this is an early sign of Sawyer being, like, somebody who actually can be reasonable in a crisis. Uh, yeah, a fairly impressive performance. I-
2: I wonder why he had the handcuffs, though.
1: He just hangs on to him in case, you know. I mean, like, listen, Maybe it's a, one of his favorite props.
2: Uh, well, I was going to say, I don't know if he's looking to do anything, uh, but it'd be very interesting. I mean, maybe Sawyer, is, Sawyer has a very interesting uh, facets, I guess, to his personality. But it's interesting you point that out, because I know that every week there's a lot of like cut material that comes out about the episodes. Apparently, in the cut material, Sawyer was supposed to pause and take a momentary hesitation before handing the handcuffs over so i see your point about there being some character progress especially between him and saeed post apple toss but maybe the original draft didn't necessarily have him push that far
1: oh i'm glad that they changed it I, th- I think it's a good character note here that like in a moment like this in a moment where it's like yeah we got to use the handcuffs otherwise it's just going to be absolute pandemonium here on the beach that you know push come to shove quite literally in this case uh sawyer is um is willing to play ball i mean like he's inconsistent with this as soon as you know Really soon from now. So, <laughs> so you know, it's a slow progress. You know, it's like uh, one step forward, four steps back. Um, I also love how, after they handcuffed Jin to the plane, Saeed walks right up to Sun and goes, What happened? And she's not talking, but you know, Saeed's like, Come on, just between us. Like, you definitely totally speak English. Just talk to me. Uh, human lie detector, Saeed
2: Yeah, I I really like that as well, because it speaks to, you know, what happened last episode when they accost Jin about uh, having the water. They think that he's the one who stole it. And Saeed just has a very lingering look at Sun. I don't know exactly what he observes from her observing, but he's very much onto it. I think if if she had approached Saeed instead of Michael, the post-commercial break would have been, yeah, I know. That's a flashback.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. All right. In the jungle. Let's see what's going on in the jungle. Uh, Jack leads everybody to the caves. There's this epic music that's swirling as they all walk into the caves. Uh, And uh, yeah. And and Locke says, uh, or Charlie says to Locke, he goes, this place is amazing. It's totally you. And he's not far off because it's totally the Man in Black's uh, original house.
2: Yeah, Uh, I love that. That's one of those uh, things that, like, you know they weren't scheduling it at the time but looking back on it it's a really fun convenient line
1: yeah as we're doing the long retcon here right like that's, <laughs> i think that's a that's a fun one for sure um yeah so jack tells everybody like keep an eye out there's medical supplies maybe we need drugs in particular and charles like drugs drugs <laughs> drugs uh, he's like one of like the the seagulls in finding finding
2: the- mine Yeah, that's and in the dark, gritty reboot of Finding Nemo that they'll do eventually, it'll be the drugs, the seagull drugs,
1: and like literally, even just hearing the word drugs, Charlie has to go off and do some drugs. So like he leaves everybody and he goes to like reload on the heroin, and Locke shows up uh, when he's going to 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 use, and uh, Charlie's not thrilled about this. He doesn't like that this man has just followed him. He's saying, "Don't move," Uh, but it's not because he's trying to narc him out. It's because Well, maybe, like, Locke has his eye on Charlie and he wants to do some stuff with Charlie. Uh, But right now, what he really wants more than anything is to save Charlie from imminent bee death. Uh, Yes. Because Charlie has stepped on a beehive, which is, like, uh, basically a landmine. uh, (laughs) And he has this irrational fear of bees. I think I'm allergic to bees. Uh, And so this begins the the bee bee plot of the episode. (laughs)
2: All right, here's a crazy theory for you, Josh, to follow up my paranoid gin thoughts. What if the man in black took the form of the bees? (laughs) (laughs) Oh! Because think about it. the, The bees are going to lead Jack and Kate to Adam and Eve, which I'd like to think the man in black would want them to discover, whether to scare them off or to sort of, I don't know, make them a bit paranoid about what the history of the island is. Could it be the man in black... The man in bees took the form of these little buggies to drive the people away, maybe inflict some pain on Charlie just for fun, and eventually lead Jack and Kate to these caves to make them take up residence.
1: Well, doesn't uh, in, in Expose, and someone correct me if I'm wrong on this,
2: is, it, is
1: the implication at the end— that the smoke monster takes the form of the swarm of Medusa spiders, or that the mm. smoke monster, like, shoes the Medusa spiders out of the jungle and six them on, on Nikki and Paolo. Uh, I, if, if it's the first thing, and the monster can take the form of a small army of Medusa spiders, Uh, Then you would assume that it's because there's a bunch of dead Medusa spiders on the island and it is uh, copying its dead, their dead form. And so what if these are undead smoke monster bees that we are dealing with here? Uh, Then I think Charlie's irrational fear is (laughs) quite well founded in this case. The MIBs are definitely worth fearing.
2: Yeah, I think I think we are another part of the long retcon, kind of I think, examining the Man in Black's quote-unquote rules, and I guess we have to see how much his shape-shifting, to what extent does it go to? Can he take the form of bees, or yeah. can, does he just have to take the form of humans?
1: Yeah, all right. Well, let's go back to the beach, and let's actually bring in our first of the eight sounds of the episode. It took us a while to get here. Uh, as we get back to just to set the stage of what we're going to listen to, it's everybody kind of like trying to figure out what to do about the Jin and Michael situation. Tempers are still flaring. Michael is still pissed off. Michael feels like he's being uh, uh, victim-blamed here. Uh, and it's going to lead us into like a fairly like racially tense conversation that I think is really fascinating for Lost to be having, especially in 2004, especially still, sadly resonant today uh and i think one of uh one of my favorite season one scenes so let's turn it to uh let's turn it to the gang back at the beach
0: i'm getting tired of saying this i was just walking the beach with my son and all of a sudden this dude is all up on me i didn't do anything surely there must be something you're not telling us surely Where you from, man? Tikrit. Iraq. Okay. I don't know how it is in Iraq. But in the United States of America, where I'm from, Korean people don't like black people. Do you know that? Kujima, Ajima! So maybe you ought to talk to him. The cuffs stay on. A little louder, Omar. Maybe then she'll understand you. Guys, that Chinese dude's gonna get pretty crispy out here. I'm gonna keep him tied down like that. He tried to kill Michael. We all saw it. The cuffs stay on until we know why.
2: So, like you mentioned, it's a really interesting moment. That I think we sort of wash over, I guess positively so, in that you do see Michael and Jin come together by the end of the season. They're the ones who get on the raft along with Sawyer. It seems like they sort of built a bridge amidst a very badly miscommunicated beating that starts off this episode. But like you said, the fact that they brought up, you know, the Korean and Black dynamic, which I think mainly is referenced in the Rodney King riots. I don't know, you know, if there are any other major events that. That really talk about it, but it's a really interesting thing that's brought into this. I know that uh, Javier, you know, when he was talking about this episode, wanted to bring it up because he essentially wanted to, to talk about this idea that, you know, uh, th- the island is this catalyst for all this baggage that people brought in. And yeah, you can imagine as a black man in America, even back then, someone who you know has to bring in this sort of wariness of you know how people act against him and how it might be because of the color of his skin and how that might manifest itself on the island. Quite frankly, I'm surprised it doesn't get brought up more. Though, like you said, it's 2004. I don't know if necessarily those conversations were happening. This show took a lot of risks on network TV in the early 2000s. That might be one bridge too far, but I think it's a really interesting thing that gets brought up and not really touched upon again in the history of Lost.
1: Well, it's just, it's very tense and it's, it's like very layered where even like someone as wonderful as Hurley calls Jin like the Chinese dude. He's like getting it very wrong,
2: <laughs> you know? Yeah. I'm, especially since Michael legitimately refers to him as Korean. And then Hurley comes in and calls him Chinese. nary three lines later,
1: right? And Sawyer, who has just like had like a fairly heroic moment, or at least is close to most heroic moment yet, calling Said Omar is not a great look for Sawyer. If not entirely surprising, Oh, uh, absolutely But then they
2: could have seen. Then he should have yelled when they were running down the beach. Omar's coming before oh, Said so completely <laughs> bodied Michael. Oh my
1: god! Oh man, that'd be amazing. I would love to see Omar from The Wire on the island. Oh, indeed, I. Would. Oh,
2: I would love uh, that. I would. I would love to make him an. Uh, Omar Other with him whistling Farmer in the Dell wearing a fake beard. All right, Rich, Rich Filiberto,
1: if you're listening, take notes for the next episode of the Lost RPG. We want uh, a Michael K. Williams character in the RPG, but no, I, I think that this is—I think that this is a really—it's uh, it, an important and like relatively unique scene in Lost, as you say, where this isn't territory that they really go into a lot. We'll talk about this a little more in the feedback section, but I think just to highlight it here, replaying the scene, I love the line delivery. I love the like the the anger in Harold Perino's voice; is he's just so frustrated and is like so sick of like this like uh you know the, these feelings that he that have that have followed him in his entire life uh you know trickling out here on the island um and, and like feeling like he's not being listened to in this moment uh and that saeed wouldn't be able to relate because he's not from america he doesn't understand some of the dynamics that are at play uh and even saeed like when he's like being challenged on where he's from sort of like the escalation in his tone mm-hmm. is really really fantastic um, and I, I think what's what's great about it is these are, for the most part, not all the way down the line, but for the most part, these are going to end up being people who are vitally important to each other. Uh, and despite the fact that they come from very different backgrounds and the fact that they've had very different life experiences, they are going to find common ground uh, and shared destiny in many ways on this island and intertwined fates and all of that good Lostian stuff Um and and so i think to have that contrasted against a moment like that is is like this one is 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 good stuff um but we'll talk about it more in the in the feedback section let's get to our next uh flashback of the episode, and actually let 's get to our second sound uh, of the eight sounds here. This is going to be a, a scene that is is presented mostly, uh, if not entirely in Korean, but I think one of the reasons why I want to play this one is again, just to like convey the incredible emotion that 's just in the voices of Daniel Day Kim and Yonjun Kim. Um, this is the scene where Jin and Sun are going to meet up just after Jin has gotten permission from son's father for her hand in marriage, and I adore this scene. So, so, so much.
0: 어떻게 됐어? 그게 말이야. 뭐? 1년 경영 수업을 받고, 2년 공장에서 일하면, 우리가 원하는 돈이 생길 거야. 아빠 밑에서 일할 거야? 그렇게 하는 게 옳은 거야. 하지만 자기야, 아니, 그건. 내가 해야. 잠깐뿐이야. 비싼 걸 어떻게 샀어 이제 이 정도는 할수 있어 Love
2: that lot, music so yeah. much well oh that's a that's the thing, and this is a yet another plug for the Jim fells accompanying video here uh he points out that you know there there is a sun and jin motif that Michael G. Aquino put in throughout uh, this episode, and obviously uh he uses a lot of Asian instrumentals. And influences. Uh, But it's what the really fun thing about it is its versatility, where in that scene, you know, it's used during really beautiful moments where they're expressing, you know, their fondness for each other. But when we get to the scene where Jin walks in covered in blood, this theme comes back, but it's more disturbing and violent. So it's a really great symbol of how, you know, the tune of their relationship is literally changing. ...over the course of this time and his uh, and continued involvement in pick Enterprises. But Young Jin Kim has this amazing expression on her face as the flashback closes when, you know, she's hugging Jin and she's looking at the ring, which is simultaneously ecstatic, yet shocked, yet worried. Because as much as Jin is going to try to cover up, you know, what he's actually doing for her father, she's fully aware of what he's capable of, and that's why she was so hesitant to have him, you know, get involved in this, no matter how, you know, persistent he is in making sure he gets in with his good graces. So, you know, we can talk later on about her feelings towards him as he gets further and further down that rabbit hole, but it's just, it's a wonderfully complicated facial expression that gets pulled off so well from a fantastic performer.
1: Yeah, I just love it. Um, All right, in the present, we go back to the jungle, and, like, they're trying to trap the bees, (laughs) <laughs> and there's a great line as Charlie's like freaking out and Locke looks at him and goes, pull yourself together, son. Uh, and he's speaking to Charlie, not Sun Quan. Uh, and Charlie is not going to be able to pull himself together. He's in fact going to break the hive and everybody goes running uh, like a scene straight out of Tommy Boy. The bees are everywhere. Your firearms are useless against them. Not the bees. Uh, not the bees. And Jack and Kate are going to run into the into the caves They're going to take their shirts off along the way because, you know, it is TV after all. And we got to get those sexy ratings. Uh, (laughs) This is like literally the only reason why this happens.
2: Nothing turns anyone on more than... Slipping down to your skivvies while escaping bees.
1: Yes. So them shirtless, uh, these two shirtless survivors are going to find themselves in the thick of the caves, and they are going to be confronted with some shirt-clad skeletons. Uh, Some some shirts that have been degrading for like, like 50 years or so, roughly, give or take. It's like they about take, forty you know, to fifty a couple, years, a couple centuries or so, <laughs> you know, a, thousand, a few thousand years maybe. Uh, who knows exactly how long? But a while, because oh. the writers certainly don't at this point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So these are the skeletal remains of Alice and Janie and Titus Welliver, or at least the characters they play on Lost. Though we do not know that quite yet. We are going to come to know them as Adam and Eve. And this is going to be one of the great enduring mysteries of Lost for a very long time uh, that is going to be resolved with an answer that not everybody loves, you know. Wait, in, e- in an episode
2: that not everyone loves.
1: <laughs> yeah, in an episode that is, has that is risen the ranks in my estimation, but only because of the way that I've hacked it, right? Like, only because <laughs> of the way that, like, I feel like I've come to, I've come into, like, my own level of peace with Across the Sea. Uh, I thought they were B's, Across the B's. Uh, but, you know, not everybody's cup of tea, uh, to keep saying letters. I don't know. Uh, I'll just say P because that rhymes
2: yeah and i think that uh that was probably charlie's excuse to go do drugs right later on once he had to go pee
1: yes i think that that's correct post b was just using the loo uh but yeah so this is adam and eve uh jack's like can't do an autopsy but someone laid them to rest here this is a burial ground for them uh and they're like wow how did they get here jack's like didn't a polar bear pop up last week how did that get here It's like, I think that the polar bear is still weirder than the two dead bodies, would be my feeling. I feel like a polar bear really doesn't belong here. Maybe some sort of human being belongs on the island. I don't think that that's quite as unbelievable as the polar bear.
2: Yeah, I mean, especially since, you know, Team Transceiver... At least at this stage. Well, Team Transceiver knows that there are people who were on the island before, and to the point where when Charlie comes in, he almost... Blows the lid off the big lie by being like, hey, it's those people that we heard on the radio get devoured by something previously on this island. So I think it's an easy assumption, at least with these initial theories, that, oh, yeah, these were two people who lived on the island. We have evidence about it. But, yeah, polar bears, as they said, like polar bears don't belong in the jungle. People do by comparison.
1: Right. Okay, And in the pockets of Adam and Eve, a black rock and a white rock, not the black rock. (laughs) Could you imagine a ship in a bottle? (laughs) I can I'm imagining it now. Not as quite as thematic and symbolic and as compelling as the recurring motif of the Black Rock and the I White I would love rock, that, but. though,
2: if they had to go to the little ship and get little teeny pieces of dynamite out of them and yeah. just have to carry them so precariously between their fingers.
1: Yeah. At I think that like the pieces of Arst would be a lot smaller.
2: <laughs> He'd be like, ow, that singed my skin a little bit.
1: Ow, it boned. Uh, yeah. So Locke and Charlie, they're going to show up. They're going to be like, ah, oh, uh, what's going on here? Uh, and there's like the whole joke about the B's and the C's. Uh,
2: Charlie, Charlie, this is why you don't have people with inside jokes to have. I,
1: I know, yeah. Charlie, like being like, I thought that they were filled with C's, actually. And Kate's like, Yo, dude, come on, strike seven. Like that's not good. That's all right. <laughs> yeah, any, I don't know. Is any that, any are, chance? are you
2: out at this point in cricket? I'm not sure.
1: Yeah. Any any chance and it's and it's over? Of course. In in real life, I think around this time, Evangeline Lilly and Dominic Monaghan were dating. Uh, which is so funny uh, when, when you think about their characters here and, like, uh, Charlie being such a doofus here. It's like, that's not that's not going to play well with just yeah. about anybody, buddy.
2: Do you wonder if uh, Charlie can be like, oh, I said this thing to uh, to Evie last night. Should I bring it into the episode?
1: No, I don't know. I don't want to put this that This great in. zinger? I don't know about that. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Uh, I love when Locke shows up and he goes, who are these men? I just love Terry O'Quinn's line delivery in this episode, <laughs> as always. Uh, and he's the one who coins the, the names... Uh, Our very own Adam and Eve. Um, And, of course, we know that this is... We're never going to get the names of these characters. It's the man in black and its mother. mother... Do you want to just call them Adam and Eve? Like, is that their their names from now on? Or are we not feeling like we should name them as such?
2: I feel like that implies a different type of relationship between them. Uh, Maybe we can find another mother-son biblical pairing that might be better. Like,
1: Mary and Jesus. Mary and Jesus. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Our very Uh, own Mary and Jesus. Our
1: very own Mary and Jesus. Uh, No, Mary is Charlie. Uh, All right. Back at the (laughs) beach. uh, Jin is still, he's handcuffed. He's boiling in the sun. Sun is trying to, uh, trying She's to help bo- Son him. is
2: boiling, too.
1: She's boiling as well. She's, like, alloying his wrist. He's really resistant. Um, we flashback once again. This is clearly post-marriage. Uh, Sun gets home, and there's a present awaiting her, and it's a, it's a dog, the Shar-Pei, Bopo.
2: Yes. Uh, good dog game. I as.
1: love Bopo. <laughs> I think one of the great great missed opportunities of loss is that bopo and vincent never got to meet up well such, i think such a good dog
2: i feel like bopo would be like the hurley if it made its way into the island with like vince i feel like there's vince a certain, is like a jack yeah well yeah i think it's, there's a certain type of dog and i don't want to be speciesist but i feel like there's a certain breedist there's a certain type of dog that i think can acclimate itself to the wilds of the jungle uh, i don't know if a sharpay would be able to tough it out there
1: you you, was, you underestimate bopo at your own peril my friend
2: I don't know, Bo- you know what? Knowing, uh, knowing his father, I think Bopo could be a secret badass.
1: Yeah, you never know. You never know. Like could- <laughs> BoBo was like, "I do it for us." Yeah. Could uh, you imagine
2: if like uh, Jin comes home, like he be he beat up that guy, he couldn't kill him, and then walks home and sees the guy just completely eviscerated, and there's Bopo holding the knife.
1: Yeah. Do Do we ever get a backstory? I, I'm sure. I'm. Sure, I, I feel like we do. Just even saying this, do we get a backstory for how Jin got the dog?
2: Yes. Uh, he. Actually, just what I spoke about, he was asked to "quote unquote" send a message by Mister yeah, Paik. I believe we'll right. see this in in translation. <clears throat> he just beats him up, or no, he just sends the message, and the guy is so grateful that he gives his daughter's right. dog away to drink. Right. Right.
1: right, that's how <laughs> that's
2: how he gets
1: that's how he gets Bopo'd the dog. Oh my god, Bopo must be so confused. <laughs> uh, it's like, wait, that's you're not my parents. Uh, but Bopo's a little puppy at the point, and yeah, was- exactly, a very impressionable. Yeah, but Jin's like, I, I got you a dog. I thought you'd be lonely. Uh, you're going to have to feed it and train it. And Son's like, cool, thanks.
0: did <laughs>
2: asked for those responsibilities. Yeah, he's cute, but the minute he starts pooping everywhere, I'm going to yeah. be really lamenting this, Jin.
1: <laughs> Uh I love later on in, I think it's season two, it's in uh, and Found, when Sun is looking for the, the wedding ring that's missing, uh, and she's going to remember her dog with Hurley. And, and she's going to talk about because she, she's going to wait to see if like, Vincent's going to poop out the ring. Uh, and she remembers Bopo very fondly. And when her always says, Bopo, what does it mean? She goes, A kiss. I always loved that. I always thought yeah. that was a great.
2: It's a really cute. And look, here's the thing I know that, again, if you look at things just from these flashbacks, Janet really looks. I'll use the term abusive, not maybe not physically so, but definitely emotionally so. But I think given the context and given what he's trying to do, having the right intentions, I, I, I appreciate it. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate what he's trying to do, if only because he brings Bulpo into our world. And a, a world without Bopo is a world that I don't want to live
1: in. It's not worth living. All right, back at the caves. Uh, Locke's going to stay behind. He and Charlie are going to salvage some wreckage. He wants to get to know Charlie better. Jack and Kate are going to bring water back to the beach. And Jack is smiling because he's just come up with an idea. Let's hear Jack's idea with sound number three.
2: All right, here's Jack's Shark Tank pitch.
0: (laughs) 46 people need to drink a half gallon a day each. Carrying all this water back and forth is going to be a real pain in the ass. Start making me regret volunteering. These caves make too good a shelter just to be used for burial. Adam and Eve, they must have lived here. Their plane crashed, or maybe they were shipwrecked. They probably found this place and knew they could survive here. Unlimited supply of fresh water. Tree canopy keeps the temperature down, shields out the sun. The openings are narrow, easier for protection against predators. We don't need to bring the water to the people. We need to bring the people to the water. I think we could live here.
1: Excuse me, there are predators on the island? Yes, like with like the shoulder-mounted laser cannons and the four jaws and and the
2: the savage claws Mm -hmm. and the, the heat vision. Maybe that's why Jack now has the cutoff look, is because he's really trying to embody Arnie and Predator. Oh my God.
1: Well, later on in Lost, they are going to get to the Joppa, uh, but there is there is no sign of any Predators unless they're in their invisibility mode the whole time. They do have yeah, that and, capability.
2: I um, mean, do you think that's why Jack sort of muttered to himself after it turns out he woke up and he got a piece of shrapnel in him? I ain't got time to bleed. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh my God.
1: It makes me want to see Locke versus the Predator so badly. <laughs>
2: Uh, oh, yes, that's come what, when, on, you when, can't tell me what I can't do god when you, when Universal starts running out of uh creatures to have battle each other, Locke versus Predator is gonna be the movie everyone wants to see, oh,
1: uh, yeah, but you think that the 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 spider man sony Disney deal is complicated. Uh, Disney having to get involved with a with a Predator movie because they've got the Lost rights
2: because okay. they've got John Locke as intellectual property.
1: Yeah, I don't think that they're gonna feel like they could mix John Locke with the Predator, <laughs> but I don't know. Who knows? Stranger things have happened, maybe. I
2: don't know yeah. if they have.
1: Uh, I don't know who. I feel like Locke and Saeed are the likeliest to be able to destroy a Predator. Uh, yeah,
2: I would say so. I think that you know Saeed being a veteran would be someone very easily able to do it. I mean, I don't know. Uh maybe Walt, someone who's like really attuned to the environment in a certain way might be able to like see the predator in some way when other uh, people can't. Yeah,
1: yeah maybe cuz I mean Walt could like summon a polar bear to fight the predator. But I mean, one polar bear would not be enough. You would yeah. need multiple polar bears. A small or army may, of polar bears.
2: Man in black, I guess if he takes the form of bees, we know predators hate bees. Yeah! Oh my God! Can you imagine a
1: predator during the Dharma Initiative times, and like they have it like like wrapped on Hydra Island? Yes! 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 Absolutely! Yeah. Pushing the button, everyone,
2: <laughs> just like just going down. You see the predator, like doing push-ups and listening to the mamas and the papas. Yeah,
1: I feel like it's, I feel like this is good material. I really like hope a, some, uh, some decision makers are listening to this podcast because we're churning out gold.
2: Yeah, Desmond says, like, oh, you don't know what happened to the last guy. We see like uh, a predator skeleton in the corner. Smoke Jack monster says, would crush the predator. Yeah, Jack says I can't do an autopsy on this, but it's probably at least the uh, franchise is at least what thirty years old. Listen,
1: people thought, you know, it was a popular theory
2: for a while
1: that uh, maybe Lost was, the island was some sort of foreign planet, right? And this was like a real hard sci-fi thing. They were stranded on a different planet. They were at the mercy of aliens and stuff. Well, there's predators. There you go. It's fueling the the theory.
2: But then, at the last minute, they bring in a xenomorph on the freighter Mm. to take care of it.
1: Yeah, it's a shame that the predator didn't make it into the church at the end of. Yes, yeah.
2: yeah. The predator sat outside and said, "I'm not. It's not my time. It's not its time." <laughs> it's yet. I sat yeah, sat on the bench.
1: Yeah, yeah. Benjamin and the predator have unfinished business. Uh,
2: all right, so yeah, so they're
1: gonna, we're gonna bring the people to the water. We need to bring the people to the water uh, uh, and away they, from the predator. Yeah, and away from the predator is the is the plan here. Uh, and I really wanted to just like listen to that so we could talk about the predator for a little while.
2: I think it contrasts nicely with what we're about to see. With like Jack's making the pros for the caves in particular, he's really got this idea in his head, and not everyone feels that way, which we'll certainly touch upon.
1: Okay, so back at the beach, Michael and Walt are walking, and Walt has a lot of questions about what's just transpired. He said, "What did you mean when you said people like him don't like people like us?" And Michael feels like very guilty for saying this. And Walt has lived the vast majority of his life, if not his entire life, away from America. Right? Like, you Mm -hmm. know, I mean, I guess a little bit when he was an infant and a toddler, but then he moved away. Uh, And so, like, this is this is not the culture that that he knows. He doesn't know what his dad's talking about. Like, Michael, you can tell is like immediately remorseful for it uh but that like quickly gives way when walt's like well why did you think why did you make him so angry and what did you do and michael's like, what did i do stop blaming me everybody why is everyone blaming me oh i'm so mad that i could just like shoot some of these survivors uh but michael's <laughs> like what kind of guy do you think i am uh you don't Man. know anything about me Yeah, what kind, man? uh, Listen, Michael always knew that his son was going to grow up to be an adult faster than everybody thought.
2: (laughs) Maybe Michael, maybe Michael manifested it for lack of a better term. Possibly, possibly. But then this
1: is the part where uh, where Walt's like, "You don't know anything about me. When's my birthday?" Michael's like, "It's August twenty fourth. When's mine?" Which
2: is so petty yeah (laughs) because that's not that's not his fault it's his mother's that's the thing michael says like well what'd your mother say about me and walt uh says she never talked about you which again unintentional savage burn by walt number like three thousand against his own dad but i think michael is much like he'll sort of monologue to Jin later i think michael's maybe holding walt resentful for the stuff that his late mother had withheld from him
1: i think that michael's situation like jokes aside Uh, and obviously, like, referencing the fact that eventually he's going to kill two people who are essentially, like, friends or at least friend adjacent. Libby's pretty much a friend. Uh, the fact that he's gonna murder these people in cold blood to save his son, like, you know, in like a a misguided, twisted way of saving his son, he believes that it's the right thing to do. I think really speaks to the fact that all of these characters are under severe stress and pressure and fire, but I think it's, it's often underreported or, or not given enough attention when we're looking back on lost, the strain that is on, Stragoy that is on Michael Dawson, uh, that not only ha- is he one of these, you know, survivors of the plane crash. And so there's just the stress and trauma that's built into that, but he is reunited with his son under very grim circumstances after. Walt's entire life essentially up to this point. Uh has to live with this reputation, this like very sour reputation that has been generated around his own persona for Walt by his his late mother slash Michael's ex-wife, or ex-girlfriend rather. Uh and now has to like not only like learn how to be a dad for the first time, but have to learn how to be a dad under the most dramatic circumstances possible. The fact that he's a shitty father sometimes here. I I don't know if I want to say like he gets a pass, but he gets my empathy for sure. Early days, Michael.
2: He's a shitty father, but this is also his first ever experience with fatherhood. Yeah, like
1: what a horrible way to have to go through it.
2: Yeah, it's the ultimate trial by fire plus water here, and And he's just gotten his ass like heartily handed to him, and everyone's like, "What?" And all these gawkers. He nearly died, and everyone's like, "Well, clearly you did something," and he's like, "No." I didn't right. do anything. Right. I right, put on right. a watch. Yeah. So we're hard on
1: Michael, but I, I, I want to I give him some slack where we can. Yeah. Um, all right. So back with Sun and Jin. And Sun is talking to Jin. She's like, maybe you should like, explain what's going on. He says, I'm not going to explain myself to a thief uh which slams us into another flashback uh like which we aren't re- we aren't replaying here it's it's a lot more visual than it is audio anyway uh but this is the great iconic scene one of the great iconic scenes of the episode and a scene we'll see twice in in Lost we'll see the flip script uh of this much later in this very season that's when Sun and Jin are at their home and Jin comes home very late and he's got blood on his hands and his shirt and she's like what are you doing what is this why aren't you talking to me why are you covered in blood and, like, he just won't respond, and eventually she just smacks him across the face. And Daniel Day Kim delivers, like, the most grim look
2: ever. Mm, yeah. Like, as it, as it as looked like, for a second, like, son just, like, awoke the bear. The yeah, poor bear. And yes. I got very scared. I mean, if you watch the scene for the first time, you would get very scared. But for what it's worth, Jin, which, again, I will say, I think, you know, when he says the line, uh, I do what your father tells me, uh, I think it's less about, like, the... You know, like, I'm just doing my job, and it's more so like, this is what your father is doing to me, without him outright saying it, because again, he feels like he's protecting her, but it's an intense scene, and correct me if I'm wrong here, let's sort of look at the other side again, like we did with, with Bopo the dog. I'm trying to remember, do we see the exact circumstance that makes Jin covered in blood in this instance? I couldn't remember if yeah. it was the one where uh, her we lover do. jumps and landed, no. like kills himself and landing on the car, or if this no. is the one where he had to beat up the guy.
1: Yeah, it's that. So he beats up the guy uh, and says, like, I just saved your life. You know, like That's what he does, because like he's there to deliver the message, and he goes there, and he just like kicks the crap out of him pretty severely, um, and I think that's the message that he delivers. Uh, and he comes back, and he's covered in blood. And now that, like, we see that scene again in that new context, and Sun leaves the room, then the camera stays. We stay with Jin, and he just like crumbles in front of the mirror because yeah. it's like it, this is what his life has become. Uh, but we're not at that point of empathy for Jin yet. I know that there's going to be a defense of Jin later on in the feedback section, so we can talk about it a little bit more there. But certainly, we know him a lot better now than we did in the moment. But I remember watching this the first time. And I guess I haven't mentioned this yet, but for me, Daniel Day Kim was on my radar because he had a great bit part in 24. He played the CTU agent Tom Baker, who was just like a really badass, but like didn't say much and didn't have much of a character outside of being a CTU agent who would occasionally team up with Jack Bauer. I think really only in seasons two and three. I don't think he was ever uh, beyond that because Lost started up. Uh, so I, I already loved the actor and I was so thrilled when he was on Lost uh but when he when we got to this moment on the show i remember thinking on the first watch like ah ah scary guy i don't know mm. i don't know what they're doing daniel de kim real bad guy uh yeah. and, I, right. and i
2: love that about him as well we'll definitely get yeah. into it as his character develops but he really does have this like hardened exterior on the ability to to your point give like really steely looks but there is a lot of plushness within that steel especially once he like softens up to the characters around him on the island
1: All right, so back in the jungle, Jack and Kate are walking back. They take a quick break because it's a big hike. And Jack is just, like, creeping on Kate. He's just, like, staring off into space, maybe. But Kate's like, hey, are you checking me out? And Jack's like, what? She's like, you know, if you're checking me out, like, that's fine. But, like, let's just, like, call it what it is. And he says, trust me, if I was checking
2: you out, you'd know it. And it's like, what? What does this mean? Uh, it means that he would do like the uh, cartoonish wolf or fox eyes, like the boing, 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 and his tongue would fall out of his mouth. The Matthew Fox eyes. Uh, yeah,
1: I don't know. This is. This, this, I think this is a, a bad, not not a great episode for Jack. Even though he's no. going to lead some people to the caves and stuff, there's like some fishy Jack business going on. Yes, yeah, uh, so that's probably I do like so much.
2: Gets beaten against some wreckage. Uh, but I love this. <laughs> no. This scene is really interesting because it reminds me of that meme. Of a man and a woman lying in bed, with her being like, "I wonder what he's thinking," and then Jack being like, "If we built a dam, we could put the <laughs> yeah. fresh water by itself and you know separate the infirmary from the beach."
1: Right, right. And she immediately is like, "Ah, I don't know," because she's not feeling this idea at all. Uh, and she says that when he says like, "When we get back to the to the beach, we're gonna have to we're gonna have a lot of convincing to do." She's like, "Well, you still haven't convinced me." that's her like trying to like plant the seed early on. Like, ah, "I'm not coming with you."
2: Trust me, if I convinced you, you know it.
1: You'd know it. Uh, all right, back at the caves. Charlie is uh, going to go and use the bathroom again. He's obviously going to take another shot at the drug us. I uh, did not
2: think you would say that when you said shh to begin with.
1: Uh, no, no, everything's good. Everything's fine. He's going to the loo. I'm going to the loo, he says. Uh, but John Locke is not going to break line of sight with Charlie. It's too dangerous. And he says, I know who you are. I know what you're looking for. And so Charlie's like, oh God, he knows I'm a drug addict. And then he says, No, Driveshaft! You played bass. And I love that John Locke is a Drive Shaft fan.
2: Yeah, it's it's really fun. Though, again, in some cut material, and this is towards like the running motif of secretly evil John Locke to begin with. Apparently, this scene, Locke purposely used the was it the Mr. Robot term, social engineering, basically. Yeah, yeah. He sort of he pulls an Elliot and he social engineers Charlie saying, I'm a fan of Drive Shaft to get Charlie to tell him about what happened in Team Transceiver. Mm. Like, his ears perked up when he heard Charlie said, oh, are these the people who were here before us? And so he basically is trying to use his quote-unquote love for drive shaft as a way to segue into a natural conversation and get Charlie's lips open so that he'll tell them about what he knows
1: i I so vastly prefer the eventual characterization yeah, the, the, of John this Locke, one this one's much more wholesome, yeah. yes, absolutely, absolutely. I think it's just more subtle and it, it's, it's 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 a great character note that like John Locke, who is going to be this guy who is you know at his desk all day every day working this awful job, uh somebody who has not had a lot of people in his life who have uh really shown him um you know love and affection, hasn't connected deeply with too many people in his time. Um, I think that probably his familiarity with Drive Shaft comes after his, uh, his brush on the pot farm. I doubt that they're <laughs> blasting this on the pot farm. I don't think Drive Shaft is necessarily the pot farm theme. Uh, I can't believe we're already talking about the pot farm. Oh, God. But I guess we are talking about Charlie and drugs, so it kind of fits. I think, uh, uh,
2: I think Anthony Cooper got him into Drive Shaft.
1: Yeah, he's like, John. Let me <laughs> let me get you into let me get you into my favorite band uh, and yeah like that really lulled him into uh into a, uh, into, a, into a sleep while
2: he took his kidney <laughs> yeah the se- the secret
1: theme of you all everybody. Is like, if we're all everybody, then my kidney is your kidney and your kidney is my
2: kidney. Yeah, that's the secret B-side of oil change. Your yeah. kidney is my kidney. Yeah,
1: oil change, uh, also a metaphor for changing kidneys. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But Locke says the self-titled shaft debut is better than oil change. He's like, man, it's a real shame what happened to the band. Uh, and I think Charlie loves being recognized for the first time. Uh, he's been out here for so long and no one has said anything yet. Uh, And they have this real bonding moment, and Charlie hasn't seen his guitar in over a week, 8 days and 11 hours to be specific. Uh, Some fascist made Charlie check the guitar in. Is I, think, the same person I think we, who all know, uh, yeah, we all know who it is, <laughs> Chrissy. <laughs> A lot of people mad at your, uh, your your LVP knock against Chrissy, by the way.
2: And listen, I'm going to make some headcanon here. I think it was her that did it. I think we're building the rule of the authoritarian oceanic counteragent. Yeah.
1: Chrissy is the true villain of, uh, of Lost, as we're going to come to find out over the course of Down the Hatch. Uh, but Locke says, you'll find the guitar again. You will see it again. I have faith, Charlie. So uh he will make good on that promise in a short uh just a, sh- a few short scenes from now let's get to sound number 4 as jack and kate are going to reach a very sexy Girah, just chopping wood uh, with total an axe. total
2: captain america in age of ultron just I like mean, smacking logs.
1: he may as well just be ripping them in half with his bare hands Saeed Jura, uh to 2004 sex symbol uh unbelievable I I just can't get enough. But anyway, so Jack and Saeed the the Civil War to to push the, the <laughs> Marvel narrative further. Uh even though I feel like Jack uh I don't know if he quite fits the Iron Man uh mold, I'm a
2: billionaire, but. philanthropist, surgeon, <laughs> alcoholic. I guess Iron Man could fly.
1: Uh so Jack would uh he'd be at
2: home. <laughs> I've flown a bit or two in my yeah. suit. <laughs>
1: uh all right well let's get to the scene between jack and saeed because this is gonna uh, talk about splitting wood i think that there we're gonna see a, a split in the camp uh forming from this scene
0: i think i let him sit in the sun a while longer then i'll take his wife aside find some way to communicate i think she knows why he attacked michael you sure you don't want me to talk to her okay if you've got that under control i'm gonna start talking to people about the caves might be able to get a few to go with me before nightfall start setting up camp you're serious is there a reason you didn't consult us when you decided to form your own civilization i'm only talking about moving into the valley well what happened to live together die alone digging in together is the only way we're going to survive our best hope of survival isn't being spotted by a plane or a ship and for that we need to organize everyone to keep that signal fire burning while others scout the island for supplies digging in anywhere else is suicide it is the only source of fresh water we found and staying on the beach in the sun without water that's not suicide i'm not going to admit defeat
2: so we had talked a lot about how hey saeed actually is a pretty capable leader maybe even more so than our consummate iron man here but this is the first outright time that i think the show references it and to the point where Sawyer's going to reference it later like there's a little bit of a tease of a small love triangle here where kate's sort of having to choose between the two to the point where when she speaks up about hey saeed jack kind of has a point he shoots her a look like oh you can't be serious you're right. actually siding with this guy over me, but I really enjoy it because when we think, okay, post White Rabbit, Jack has a pretty easy shot for a while at being a leader. Everyone falls under his command, but no, he faces opposition very quickly in the form of Saeed, who essentially has been challenging him for leadership the entire time, even before he took the position.
1: Yeah. He's like, I think I'll put the die alone. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he really does not go with the lift together deal. Um yeah, I, th- I think that we'll have a lot to talk about with this uh, when we get to the feedback. So we don't need to to linger here too much. But this is going to drive some of the action for the rest of the episode as they go back to the to the beach. And Jack is going around recruiting people for the caves. And Said is doing the same thing. He's going to go to Michael. He's going to make the pitch to Michael. Michael's like, listen, I appreciate the apology. Uh, but obviously, you're not just coming to apologize to me about this morning. And Saeed's like, yeah, are you going to the caves? Are you going to be? He's like, don't even bother.
2: <laughs> I'm not going anywhere. Got to okay. get off this
1: rock. By the way, uh, the
2: you did something, right, to promote this guy jumping on you? <laughs> it's your
1: fault that Jack's going to the caves,
2: right? Yes. Like, everything what did you do, you. Michael?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> just continuing to victim blame Michael Dawson. Uh, Jack's going to go. He's going to throw a bottle of water to Jin. Uh, Jack's going to go to Hurley. Hurley's going to move to the caves. Uh, and Hurley says, I go where the boar's at because we know the boar hunter is going to be at the cave. Uh, and, and Hurley makes a joke about Jack moving to the caves with Kate He's like so what about you and Mrs. Kate like you guys gonna be moving in together Jack's like what are we five <laughs> It's like yeah with that voice
2: party <laughs> five. you have to do a lot of like labored breathing though too because I, I love know. matthew fox but that's family guy almost like broke my perception of his character with how much he breathes heavily during his yeah. dialogue
1: yeah i'm obviously gonna have to work on my matthew fox impression but uh we've got a long time to to get a good there's just a I, little
2: bit <laughs> I, to be fair i feel bad for jack here because everyone's like and oh you and alone. kate huh? and he's like uh we need to survive here like stop focusing on these trivialities i want to get everyone fresh water
1: yeah oh i just got a text message from my wife who's in the other room listening and she goes you're matthew fox is an abomination to all foxes
2: wow the fox expert for the podcast
1: yes okay so from one fox to a to a fox wiggler uh, that is the that is the update she says it's okay babe uh, is the is the follow well if you if you
2: I need said. to apologize in a very romantic language
1: all right I'll bring, <laughs> I'll bring her i'll bring her a flower later uh, all right so kate is uh, gonna get some attention from sawyer who calls her the belle of the ball uh, what do you
2: what do you think about sawyer sunglasses by the way speaking of fashion watch
1: Certainly not his worst glasses look uh, that he will come across.
2: (laughs) It's weird. It's like watching old Survivor seasons when they used to be able to wear sunglasses. Like, It just feels odd to have people wearing sunglasses on the island.
1: Just to shout out the Storm podcast once again, uh, one of the other great Lost podcasts that are going on right now. I know that they do a segment where, like, what's the most, like, uh, early 2000 moment from an episode. Uh, I got to imagine that this made the list. <laughs> like, the, yeah. just the, the ridiculous look. Uh, you guys should go listen to The Storm and report back and let us know if we were right on that, because I, I cannot imagine that there was anything else from this episode that even competes uh, with, so- <laughs> with Sawyer's yeah, ridiculous look looks, here.
2: Looks like he's going to go mountain biking when he's I done know. with Kate.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I still think the Jack's sleepless uh, button-down shirt is worse um but he's gonna lay out the argument for for staying and going like you know the options are pretty clear like if you stay on the beach you risk getting hurt because the doctor isn't here if you go to the caves you risk missing the plane if a plane comes by or some rescue comes by uh kate keeps wanting to be like all right well where are you gonna go and he's like well where are you gonna go she goes well i don't know where are you gonna go he says you didn't answer my question and i asked first Uh, Ah,
2: such a good read i love it i love it all right and and also uh, i will say that sawyer is also obsessed with optimists and pessimists like in the uh you know with he when he absconded with the water bottles before and he's like i gave away my water bottles it's gonna rain hell i'm an optimist and in this episode he called the cave people pessimists so i Mm -hmm. always love him sort of like setting himself up as like i'm a positive good guy
1: yeah listen in his life right like you're never the bad guy in your story yeah uh although he does that multiple points back i'm a bad (laughs) dude like, I'm actually a terrible person, uh, which is, you know, sometimes true. Not always, but sometimes true. Um, all right. Son is going to follow Michael into the jungle. He's going off into the jungle. Uh, and she's like going to watch him creepily from the sidelines. And we get a flashback. Uh, where Sun's decorator is showing up in gins on the phone and he's got no time for the decorator. And Bopo the dog is all grown up now, so some time has passed.
2: And how many uh, men do you think he's killed? Yeah, so many.
1: <laughs> he has ripped out the jugulars of many a man. Uh, Bopo the kill dog, the attack dog. Uh, and Sun's going to go and talk with the decorator. And of course, the decorator is not just the decorator. Uh, it, it would appear that the, direct, the decorator, at the very least, was a, a conduit for her son uh being in a position to learn English. Uh, <laughs> she's gonna set son up with her uh, at this point you would assume deceased lover. Uh the, the mm. man who's gonna teach her English is also gonna be the man she has an affair with, who I think at this point is uh is splat. Yeah, I'm they
2: pretty sure splat he's now. uh he's car wreckage at this point.
1: Yeah, I think so. Uh, she's gonna say, You gotta you're gonna get to the airport, you're you're gonna you're gonna run away at eleven fifteen. You're gonna lie low. You're gonna you're gonna keep a low profile uh, until everyone thinks you're dead, and then you'll be able to to move about the world freely. You're gonna be able to just wander wherever you want to go. And like, dude, that's such an intense plan. <laughs> like, yeah, that's not what happens. But Mike Bloom, that is like a remarkably intense alternate reality like obviously the island is massively intense but think about the parallel universe not the sideways universe but think about like the uh, the branch universe where uh where where sun didn't get on oceanic 815 and she just like darted she just like dashed and then just like faked her own death and walked
2: the planet yeah and we'll especially imagine that she has to leave everything and everyone she's loved you know when you go to witness into witness protection at least you like have, yeah, you have people hopefully that you that know you and that you can communicate with. She would have to be absolutely nobody. Just she'd have to be Arya Stark, basically.
1: I mean, I love that when you put it that way. Uh, Son <laughs> becoming a faceless woman uh, and becoming the assassin. I think nobody, uh, nobody would have pegged that knowing Jin. You know. what, what's east of korea <laughs> i don't know there's actually an answer to that <laughs> uh, all right well let's get into let's get into this next sound that follows what we heard at the very start of this podcast son comes to michael and uh he gives her the very dismissive look who came to chat and she says, i need to talk to you and he and we are floored and it leads to this continuation of the conversation where she explains why she can speak english you speak english
0: Yes. What? You speak English? Why didn't you say anything? My husband doesn't know. Why would you learn English and not tell your husband? He has a bad temper. What my husband did to you today, it was a misunderstanding. No, I got it. Loud and clear. It was the watch. Your husband tried to murder me for a watch? I found this watch two days ago. It belongs to my father. Protecting that watch is a question of honor. He called trying to kill me in front of my kid, honor. You don't know my father. I need your help.
2: What I find so interesting is I feel like son doesn't answer any of Michael's questions. Not really. You know, when she says I need to talk to you, it's more I need to talk at you and then I need to answer a favor. Because, you know, when he asks... Uh, you know, why, how did you learn English and your husband doesn't know? She says he has a bad temper, which you could take to be like, oh, she couldn't tell him because he has a bad temper. But I think she's more so using it to explain why he attacked him. You know, yeah. like she, she, does, she basically skips over the actual reasoning as to why she wanted to learn English.
1: Right. Uh, I wish that Michael had said, you learned English? Uh, but he doesn't get the line exactly right. Yeah. But he has like the same emphasis that the series Bible had.
2: Yeah but then you know when he comes back and son you know starts revealing she learns English everyone turns to Michael and says like what did you do to make son learn English.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is somehow all your fault, yeah, right? Yeah, Michael. Oh, my God. Michael is like the scapegoat of everybody on Lost.
2: Michael's the Jerry Gergage of Lost at this point.
1: <laughs> oh, man. Uh, I never would have put those two characters together, <laughs> but I'm not necessarily mad at it. Uh, all right. Well, let's go back to the caves or just on the outskirts of the caves as Charlie is once again for the third time going to try and do some drugs in private. This time John Locke is going to come to him and be like, "Yeah, all right. So like I obviously know that you're trying to do drugs right now and we should probably talk about that." Uh so they're going to have a conversation about that and it's going to lead to a bit of a bonding moment between Charles Pace and Jonathan Locke. I don't think that those are their full names actually.
2: No, uh, I think like John Barry or some sort of like weird name. John probably.
1: John Barry Locke. John Barry
2: Locke. Yes.
0: Listen to me, you old git. I'm going in the jungle. A man has a right to some privacy. Just hand it to me. You're gonna run out. I guess it's sooner rather than later. Painful detox is inevitable. Give it up now, at least it'll be your choice. Don't talk to me like you know something about me. I know a lot more about pain than you think. I don't envy what you're facing, but I want to help. Do you want your guitar? More than your drug? in that need know. What I know is that this island just might give you what you're looking for, but you have to give the island something. You really think you can find my guitar? Look up, Charlie. You're not know, going to ask me to pray or something. I want you to look
2: up. And obviously... There the it is. Lit- yeah. Literal look up is the guitar. Apparently in the script, Charlie was supposed to cry in response to it, but apparently just off the page, uh, Dominic Monaghan and Terry O'Quinn laughed, much like Jack did after being foisted over the the, uh, the cliff last episode, and that's what ends up making the final cut, which I think, to the point they made before, is more appropriate it's it's a bonding moment and simultaneously laughing I'm like oh it was really right there the entire time you literally said look up
1: but I, I, I there is like this emotional look on on Dominic Monaghan's face too where it's like this laugh that crumbles into like uh, like a, oh my god you know like and and one of the things about Charlie as we'll we'll learn you know in the next episode is he is a very religious guy like he was you know he was born you know and and raised with religion as a central part of his life so I think that this is a moment that in some regards at least. Uh, you know he's susceptible to being a man of faith i mean look at his final arc right like what right. he does is because he has faith in in desmond's vision uh he has faith in the fact that if he does uh what desmond has prophesized uh then he's going to save the the people that he cares about the most like his death will mean uh greater things for the people he loves uh so i i think that you know charlie's charlie's very wobbly storyline you know like charlie's charlie's story that uh you know has has some relapse moments in, in certain regards. Uh, it's, it's uneven along the way. Uh, but this is a beautiful moment on, on that road for him. Uh, I, I love the scene and I, I love the way that it's played.
2: Locke says you have to give the Island something. Josh, what did Locke give the Island in your opinion?
1: I think that he's given the Island, like all of his faith, mm-hmm. everything, every last drop uh he is he's like he has forked over his like his his control over his self to the island that he's just like a free spirit he is an agent of the island at this point i think is what he believes he's a vessel he's like you you gave me the ability to walk and i give to you my willingness to do Almost anything. And like that faith is tested along the way, obviously, most notably with the hatch stuff later in season two. But for the most part, like he's he's just like, You have all of my belief. Which is to his chagrin ultimately. But um yeah. I that would be my answer.
2: I'd agree with you on that. I think yeah, I think it's less so physical as what he's doing with Charlie, and more so, you know, I guess what he's quote unquote sacrificing is uh his his loyalty to anybody else. Even though he said he'd fall under Jack's line and gave him Jack leadership advice last time, I think he's first and foremost loyal to the island and whatever the island provides. So much so that even in episode six, he's already speaking as an emissary of the island, as as an expert on it. And I guess it's an interesting thing to track as well in terms of if Locke really truly believes that, you know, uh, if you sacrifice something, you will be rewarded how that's going to translate to, you know, the way he's going to treat Charlie, because this is a first step in a very long path for Locke and Charlie when it comes to his sobriety in the first few seasons. We'll see when he encounters other characters like Mr. Echo, who is a man of faith in a very different way, what that sacrifice might entail. But if this is indeed his mantra, I'm very intrigued to see how that transpires in the way he treats other people
1: all right let's get another jack and kate scene in the books and let's hear it uh let's not just talk about it let's go to the penultimate sound of the episode sound number seven as jack is going to come to the to, to kate and say all right cave time and kate's gonna be like hey yeah about that
0: hey it's almost time to go I don't want to be. No one's asking you to. I just can't. Dig in. Why not? Someone else can stay here. Keep a lookout. Wait for rescue. Why does it have to be you? It's not it. Then what is it? Kate, how did you get to be this way? Just what is it that you did? You had your chance to know. If you need me, you know where to find me. You know where to find me, too.
2: I think when Kate says, uh, you know, you had your chance, it's the writer saying, yeah, we still don't know what she did. We're so working on it. it. Yeah. We still can't say anything.
1: Ooh. But I mean, she's not wrong. She's like, Jack, you should have let me tell you. Like, yeah. you know, I think back in the day, my response to that was like, Kate, that's so frustrating. Just tell us. But at the same time, like, Jack shushed her. Yeah. He shushed her. She was ready to tell him. And he's like, yeah, I don't want to know.
2: And yeah. she yeah, was like, wait. all right, well, I would have told you. But you were so dismissive. I mean, we we definitely came after Jack for that. at The end of Taboo La Rasa, yeah. Uh, which, by the way, shout out to listener Amy Larue who stumbled upon the optimal listening snack for Down the Hatch, which is Tabula with a side of rosé. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I feel like you need to throw some more stuff in. than just uh, yeah, put, and some, put, and put <laughs> some honey in there for the bees. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh. Yeah, uh, but I I see your point there. However, and there will be some points we talk about this in feedback. I'm not a huge fan of Kate's POV in this scene, specifically her coming in by saying, I don't want to be Eve. Like it almost implies her not wanting to go to the case because she doesn't want to be coupled up with Jack or at least perceived that way, which is not very fair to Jack. And is also like a little A little pithy, considering, again, it's based should be based more so on survival survival than, oh, I saw Jack and Kate together in the trees. They might be kissing. Yeah, but what
1: if she's like, she got really sketched out by him checking her out? She's like, I don't think I want to go to the caves with that guy. Like He was
2: thinking about a dam. When
1: when she's saying, like, I don't want to be Eve, maybe she's like, I don't want you to murder me in the caves and throw me in, like, the cave graveyard. Uh, (laughs) Like, you know, maybe she's got a Don't worry,
2: Kate. It'd take at least 40 to 50 years for you to turn into bones. Oh,
1: my God. Terrifying. Uh, all right, let's get to the final sound of the episode and uh, one, of, one of the really great Harold Perrineau performances on Lost. As Michael has now talked to Son, he knows what's up. He understands that it's all about the watch. He understands that he's going to be able to talk to Jin and say whatever he wants. and Jin's not going to understand a lick of it. And so he is going to go off. And here it is, the final sound of the episode.
0: Well, I know you can't understand a word and normally I'm not the talking out loud type but since I have a captive audience I hope for your sake you pay attention I'm not exactly having the best month of my life I barely knew my son and now I gotta be his daddy and then to top it off I have a deranged Korean guy trying to kill me and for what? Look I get it hmm? right? It's the watch Mine broke I found this in the wreckage, and I figured hey Why let a $20,000 watch go to waste? Which is ridiculous, since time doesn't matter on a damn island! Stay away from me. And my kid.
2: You know, the writers are like, time doesn't matter. On an island, no, they're like, hmm, mm-hmm, like four years from now. Let's go back to that idea. Yeah, Let's put a pen in that one. Uh, uh, oh, Matthew, Matthew Fox, Fox leaving the, the writer's, writer's room. room. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: sorry. Oh God, I don't know why I'm using that voice so much today. <laughs> For uh, the
2: last time, we gotta go into Jack's tattoos. Yeah,
1: Michael says to Jin, "Stay away from me and my man." Uh, <laughs> and he's like, got like the axe. It's very menacing. It's uh, it's all very here is Johnny of him. Uh, and it's great. It's it's good. I love
0: it. Yeah, and
2: it's and it's also it's Michael sort of getting his pound of flesh, not only out on Jin. Much like people use Michael as a punching bag, he's using Jin as sort of a punching bag for all the gripes that he has. You know, he brings up again like the situation from off the island that has nothing to do with Jin, but it's an ability for Michael to finally let some some tempers flare. And again, him and Jin, this will be the most contentious they are. They'll eventually learn to come together. But Jin is freed, even though he will not lose that handcuff from his wrist until next season.
1: Yeah, for a very, very long time. Uh, Sun is watching the whole thing in uh, from a distance, and it gets us to our final flashback of the episode where we're back at the airport in Sydney, and we're getting to see Jack reaming out the, the gate agent once again. Uh, and in the background, you, you see Sarah Stripes is there and so many other great background people. There's this one guy who looks like Wilford Brimley. I don't know if you caught him. Uh, <laughs> Son, don't
2: leave. You're gonna get diabetes.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, he really looks like him. he's got like this big hat on and like this amazing Hawaiian shirt. And I don't know if it looks like Wilford Brimley to anybody else, uh, but it provided some thoughts that I will get into in the feedback section. Uh, more, more Wilford Brimley to come. Uh, but with the most important people in the background, of course, are Jin and Son. Jin, who's kind of like taking some notice of what's going on with Jack uh, and Son. The clock's ticking, Mike Bloom, and it's mm-hmm. almost 11.15, and it's time to sneak away, to fake your own death, and walk the planet as, a, as a, the sun is about to rise on a new existence for Miss Kwan. Uh, and she's very upset about it, and she's crying, and it's incredibly emotional. And Yunjin Kim, a phenomenally underrated actress, is just doing a spectacular job. And she looks back at Jin, who it's almost like he knows. And he's got the flower, and he holds it up, and it's like, "Remember this huge throwback! Remember how I wooed you with flowers? Here's another flower." She's like, "I can't run away." It's uh, too beautiful.
2: This scene gets me every time. It's just so well done, and it's also really fun to be taken from multiple contexts. If you just come from the house of the rising sun angle, it's you're like, "Ah, oh, son, why didn't you do it?" You know, it, it's it's her, and you see that pain on her face too. She has these tears. Rolling down, realizing you know the, the fate that she's conscripted herself to the handcuff that she has on her wrist. But if you look at it from the in translation perspective, where we know that Jin is planning to take Sun and him away, right. to escape the life, the flower is a really interesting moment where it's him sort of, you know, sending this is a symbol who we'll to be. her. We'll, we'll yeah, go, exactly, go back to what like, we were exactly. Like we, you're gonna meet the man that you fell in love with again. Yeah. I have become a different person, but we're going to change all that. We're going to run away now. And it's it's a really interesting moment where like both characters are viewing it from completely different perspectives. And maybe that's what brings them together in the end. In this moment, it's very sad, but I just love the multiple meanings behind it and multiple perspectives. And especially because it's so well done from both performers that you see both sides of there, even the first time out.
1: Yeah, totally. I also have to note uh note that there is a there's a woman behind Sun and Jin in this scene who's like wearing this ro- rose-colored shirt and she just like continuously stares directly into the camera like really? multiple times. It's very distracting once you see it. You can't unsee it. Go back and watch that scene. There's just like a woman who like is really trying very hard not to stare into the camera. And she's failing. She's bombing. You had
2: one job. (laughs) Oh, the Jim Halpert of (laughs) the airport.
1: She's killing it. She's crushing it. All right. Final series of scenes. Uh, We get another episode closing montage, music montage, uh, uh, you know, following in the mold uh, as established by the great Tabula Rasa. uh, As we see Jack is leading some people into the caves and Charlie's playing guitar and Hurley's going to play a song, and it's Are You Sure by Willie Nelson. One of a few times, we'll hear Willie mm. Nelson, some Probably, shotgun Willie uh, coming up. playing
2: play next to uh, some drive shafts on the pot farm.
1: Yeah, I think Willie Nelson Locke was definitely rocking out to on the pot farm for sure. No yeah, question. Yeah, 100%. No question.
2: He's, like, he's like, oh, man, just like him, I'm never going to lose this hair. Yeah, 100%. Ponytails for life.
1: Ponytails for life. Uh and it's it's a it's a beautiful song look around you at the faces that you see are you sure this is where you want to be uh a little on the nose maybe but like it's it's beautiful like the it's just it's a perfect juxtaposition tonally and emotionally uh to where everybody's at and we you know we see we see Walt you know asking Michael when's your birthday it's a super cute moment uh we see Sawyer's just like kind of like um, You know, like kind of like uh, tending to the fire pensively. Uh, he's basically alone. Saeed's there. He's kind of alone. Kate's there. She's fairly alone. Uh, interestingly, at the caves, who is Jack sitting next to by the fire?
2: Oh, this is jo- a nice quiz. This- I don't know.
1: It's Johnny Locke. He plops ah! down next to Locke because at this point, early on in Lost, Jack likes Locke. He's like, this is a solid guy who led me in the right direction before. Uh, Locke is not yet responsible for any human deaths. So Jack feels like he can trust this guy. Uh, it's going to be several weeks before we're really talking about Jack and Locke as adversaries. Early on, they were really getting on, uh, getting along pretty well. Uh, but Jack is staring into the fire. Kate's staring into the fire. Willie, Willie Nelson is, is telling us what's on their minds.
2: Anyway. Willie Nelson's dealing with a different type of fire.
1: Yeah, so are you sure this is where you want to be? And there's a slow fade out, and we cut to the lost title. And that, Mike Bloom, is House of the Rising Sun.
2: Uh, Solid so episode. A,
1: really fun episode of the show.
2: Yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there, and I think the ending is really fun as well. Again, that's a nice season one trope of the musical montages. And yes, it's a little on the nose, but it's a really, it's fundamentally different. You know, I feel like... Uh, the song at the end of episode three was very much everyone coming together and to the point where uh, in the two clips that we played of Jack Shark Tank pitch and Jack <laughs> and Kate splitting yeah. apart credit where credit is due is playing, which really represents both the community coming together and now splitting apart. This is a fundamentally different musical montage than the other one. It's much more down-tempo, which makes things very exciting for what's to come.
1: Absolutely. All right. Well, let's get into some behind-the-scenes of this episode, some notes from the Ben behind the curtain, the great Ben Martel. Uh, He notes some great stuff that we should be talking about as it pertains to the House of the Rising Sun Uh, including the portrayal of Korean culture on the show. And this uh, this is what Ben writes, and it comes from a bunch of different sources. We will make sure to link to all of this in the show notes, which you can see in your podcast feed. Right now. Uh Ben writes, Yunjin Kim and Daniel Day Kim had early concerns about the portrayal of Koreans on the show, especially given the controlling demeanor of Jin in the early episodes. Yun Jin wanted to be clear that this didn't represent life in South Korea at the time. It was just as outdated as in the West. Rather, the relationship between Jin and Sun reflects the specific dynamic of how Jin's personality has developed as a result of working for Mr. Pike. The scripts were written in English. A translator was hired by Lost who spoke minimal English. Mm. Daniel Dae Kim and Yunjin Kim would have to work with him to help him understand the nuance of the English script because generally a literal translation would not reflect how the sentence would be expressed in Korean. There are some instances on the show which appear to some Korean speakers to be direct translations where the true meaning is lost as a result. Uh, I feel like that's lost on you and me, Mike. I know, you know, you're, you're joking about having learned Korean in uh, fluency very recently. Uh, but I feel like a lot of the heavy lifting is is clearly accomplished by, um, you know, uh, facial expressions and um, yeah. emotion in the voices of these actors.
2: I mean, I wonder if the choice to hire a translator who spoke minimal English was purposeful. Mm-hmm. You know, like, was it a choice on the showrunners to be like, we want to make sure that this translator knows our actors and vice versa so that they learn the language from each other i know that yunjin kim i believe uh spoke a lot more korean than daniel day kim I yeah like i mean she's
1: i believe she is korean you yeah, know she's
2: like she's a she was a pretty notable korean yeah exactly as well. so i guess yeah. she was the bridge between them much yeah. like sun on the show
1: yes Um, Daniel Day Kim said that the pilot was problematic in many ways in terms of representation, but they were very sensitive to the issue and not just in a way that was patronizing. He said, I know that JJ and Damon are concerned about how the Asian community sees our characters. They really did help form the character based on not only what I was saying, but also what Yunjin was saying. Uh, he also later reflected that he had concerns about an early cancellation of Lost. Uh, this is from Daniel Dakim. Kim. He said, if, for instance, we got four or five episodes on the air and then we got canceled, the entirety of Jin's character would be what you saw at the beginning. To me, that was <clears throat> problematic because it represented a number of stereotypes that I worked so hard to avoid in my career. I had a lot of faith in J.J. and Damon that if the show continued, the character would grow and deepen. They had assured me of that. So it wasn't a matter of trusting them. It was just a matter of trusting whether or not the show would be successful. Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I think that Daniel Day Kim is a really talented guy. Uh, he's not yeah. just a, a remarkable actor, but he is uh, he's proving to be a really great producer. He's brought in a lot. He's working on a lot of really he's, interesting uh, projects. He's working on The
2: Good Doctor, is he mm-hmm. not?
1: That's correct, yeah. He is uh, one of the driving forces behind that. Uh, so to hear him like speak so intelligently about story should not come as any kind of surprise. At all whatsoever, and I think for him to be talking about like the importance culturally uh, of gin, and eventually being able to show the complexity of gin, uh, you know, it, it, that all that all tracks and that all lines up, and I think the fact that he is eventually. Able, I mean, we talk a lot about like the, the 180 that happens with Sawyer, right? But I, but I think with Sawyer, is it like a full 180 or is it like a 155? <laughs> you know like It's not like a full turn in the other direction because he's still like a bit of a scoundrel even at the end. Um, but to, to think about where we start with Jin and where we wind up, not just by in translation where you get like the full new perspective on him, but really by the end of the series. Uh, is is pretty remarkable and a huge testament to this man's talent.
2: Yeah, I I mean, I've said many times I love the Jin arc in particular. And he brings up a great point. And I, you could argue that for the Sawyer character as well, where Lost, you know, I think scripted out a first season that brings in a lot of rug pulls. You know, imagine if uh, they canceled Lost in the first three episodes so we didn't get the walkabout reveal. So much of it was predicated on what reveals and how things would happen over the course of the season. And it's crazy to think about in those days when networks were not necessarily picking up full seasons until after a handful of episodes, there was a chance that things could be canceled before they found out the the true backstory of those characters. And as a result, they come across as a bit too, a bit two dimensional before, you know, the, the, the facade drops and they reveal the full three dimensions. So for a variety of reasons, uh, the, this podcast included that we're able to talk about lost for so many weeks, I'm very happy that loss kept going because it was able to really not only show Jin's past and how it doesn't, you know, it might uh, be a bit of a misnomer as to his behavior currently on the island, but also. The person who's going to become, especially the more he learns English, the more he ingratiates himself into the community after separating himself so much in these first few episodes, then the more lovable and the more interesting character he'll become, in my opinion.
1: All right, let's turn to Adam and Eve, uh, who are introduced... Mary and Jesus. In this episode, we know that's going to be the man in black and his mama. Uh, I think that there were... There, there are a few things on the show that had quite as much heat behind this in terms of the theorizing. Everybody had a theory. Everybody thought that this was going to be uh, some set of characters that we already knew, that there was going to be some time travel element. I think Rose and Bernard was a really popular mm-hmm. theory. Uh, I um, heard some
2: about a uh, time traveling Jack and Kate as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. which she's like, I don't want to be Eve. It's like, well, bad news. That's absolutely you. <laughs> That's literally you in the cave. Uh, so you're going to be Eve Evangeline Lily. Um, But we like, how much was this planned, right? Like, that this is actually the man in black and mother, or was this like a late, is this a long retcon? Is this something that they had settled upon later? Uh, I feel like there's some conflicting reports on this, and Ben Martel brings this up. He cites. First, an Entertainment Weekly article uh, in an interview with Jeff Jensen, uh, who at the time was of EW, uh, has gone on to do some creative endeavors with Damon Lindelof, including the movie Tomorrowland. I believe he's working on Watchmen, the show as well. Uh, But was a a prolific Lost uh, commentator and 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 writer. And if you weren't reading Jeff Jensen, were you really a Lost fan? Uh, But uh, in this interview. Lindelof, it was, it was right before Not in Portland aired the Season 3, uh, the season three Episode 7 that uh, one Woo! day we may cross paths with uh, Robin and Akiva should they choose to spin the wheel and land on uh, land in frozen donkey wheel territory. Uh, but Damon Lindelof said just before the airing uh, that when all is said and done, people are going to point to the skeletons and say that this is proof from the very beginning they always knew what they were going to do with this. Uh, and had also referenced an anagram that would be in that episode, which would be an indicator uh and this is probably middleos, which is the, the the science company uh which oh, is I thought an- it was
2: the popular Lord of the Rings Game of Thrones crossover that 's occurring after lock v predator
1: no l v p uh no we we award those oh, no. points later <laughs> yeah 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 uh the the anagram for middleos being lost time um I don't know how much that holds up, but okay. I'm like, I
2: don't really, oh crap. And I don't really uh, care. I don't they said really they'd care. do something. Uh, let's just throw Middle-os. Sure. This is vague enough that we could put it in at some point.
1: I think the thing that I that I, I would probably in the past have raged about more is like then just don't say anything. Like you don't have to say anything. You don't have to say that you have this plan from the very
2: beginning. Like we don't need you don't need to defend yourself in this way. It's okay. It's a creative endeavor and it's growing and it's changing. Yeah, you're you're, I, you're building the plane as it flies, and Jack is letting you know that he's flying it. Best
1: idea wins. I love it. Like you don't have to tell us that you know who the skeletons are, when, like clearly it's not like going to really totally line up in terms of how it landed. Um, I don't, I'm not that mad about it anymore. I think that making this show is really, really hard. And like, if there's like the choke panic moments, we're like, we knew it. We knew what we were doing. Shut up. Go away. <laughs> I have a little more sympathy for that now. Uh, uh, but in in his Lost Will and Testament, Javier Griot Mark Swash, who, of course, is the writer of this episode of, of House of the Rising Sun, uh, recalled that in his time on Lost during the first two seasons, uh, that, he, that he didn't remember there ever being a suggestion of a character named Jacob or the man in black as some kind of manifestation of good and evil. So does this refute that Adam and Eve being uh, the man in black and the mother uh, was part of the plan the whole time? Or is this just highly privileged information that Damon Littleoff kept to himself? Uh, only your barber knows for sure.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Though so if you're Locke, you have not seen him in a long time. <laughs>
1: it's been a minute. The, the
2: Locke ball jokes are not going to go away anytime soon, yeah. I don't think. <laughs>
1: Ben Martel writes that in 2010, President Barack Obama was given the opportunity to ask the answer to any question he wanted before the last few episodes of Lost aired. And he said that he wanted to know the identity of Adam and Eve. Ben uh, he should have just, just, <laughs> waited until that week. Uh, I mean, Ben does not provide us with a source on that, so I'm going to have to grill him offline. Uh, but I just love the idea of Obama as a big Lost nerd. I am fantasizing that Obama's listening to every episode of Down the Hatch. I I I'm fantasizing that he's going to send in a Lindelof. Oh uh, no!
2: Well, he does love to slow jam the news. So maybe he can just slow jam the Lindelof.
1: I love what you're doing with Billy Wallace and Rodney Sesto. <laughs> I think they're great characters. You're great story. Oh, oh boy!
2: Oh, per- sorry, President Obama. I don't know if you want to root for Rodney Sesto in particular. He's no. a little bit of a of a season, first half of season one Sawyer quality to him at he'll, the moment.
1: He'll evolve. He'll evolve. Uh, So shout out to our number one down-the-hatch fan, President Barack Barack
2: Obama. Obama.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The the number one down-the-hatch supporter.
2: Or at least the 44th.
1: So let's, uh, let's pull a story of the week from the series Bible. Again, we want to bring some of these up, uh, all of these different stories that were pitched in the series Bible that did not make it to air. Uh, ben posits this one, that this could have made it onto Lost eventually. Uh, in an attempt to find common ground with Walt... Michael ventures in the jungle to find his son's pet, Labrador. Upon locating Vincent, Michael is surprised to see that not only has the dog's ear been
2: bitten off, but that the bite marks appear to be human. Human being in all caps. Is that where Mike Tyson comes out of the jungle? Maybe it was a predator. Maybe it was, What the hell? Like, yeah. stop Why I don't want dog abuse. That is so... Yeah, get it out of ...weird. Here. I thought... If, well, listen, if it's Bopo, Bopo comes out with a human ear and his teeth. It's the other way around.
1: Yeah. Uh, the caves are a set. I'm sure many people know this. Maybe they don't, but the caves, this is not... Uh, much of Lost, like the wilderness stuff, those are like, you know, real wilderness locations that are used on Lost, actual exterior locations. Uh, but the cave set, it was not a natural location. The whole thing, including the waterfall artificial and built for the show on a sound stage uh, so so yeah I think that that's mentioned in the series Bible as well that like eventually we're gonna we're gonna find we're gonna be able to ground ourselves in a sound stage we're gonna be able to control this thing a little bit
2: <laughs> yeah and then we're gonna build one set that we're gonna live in for an entire second season basically yeah all right and Mike already
1: pointed out that Jim fells once again has a great uh, video for the music that you were hearing in House of the Rising Sun we will link to that in our show notes. All right, feedback time. And once again to send in your feedback, that's down the hatch at postshowrecaps.com. Uh we would love to hear from you. This is how we get to hear from you in our fifteen, sixteen others section. And we'll start off. A lot of people uh had feedback about White Rabbit, so we'll read some of that
2: feedback Should here we before. uh should we call this like other one previously on down the hatch
1: yeah previously on down the hatch uh so this is from connor howe connor howe wrote in and said i absolutely loved the ending of white rabbit with sawyer and boone on the beach where sawyer asks him how it feels to take sawyer's spot as the most hated man on the island however we don't really see boone being hated for the rest of the season leading up to his death Did the writers just forget about that narrative, or did they give us a taboon la rasa? Uh, Connor says, sorry, I couldn't pass that. Part of me thinks that Connor wrote that question specifically to get taboon la rasa onto Uh, the podcast.
2: Considering he's talking to two people that have both done that themselves, uh, we cannot cast that stone right now.
1: Mission accomplished, Connor. You got us. Uh, Bob Johnson wrote it and said, if Christian's body wasn't put on 815, then how is his shoe in... The jungle. Yeah, I got to be honest. My Christian Shepard's body was absolutely on o- Oceanic yep. Eight One Five, and I will not be convinced otherwise.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. Unless people say that she was from one of the creepy dolls.
1: No, it's 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 Christian Shepard's shoe. You know, does the man in black can imitate Christian Shepard? The rules are the rules. Yeah, uh, it would.
2: That's another benefit of the caves that Jack did not talk about: is you get a creepy doll to sleep with at night.
1: Oh, God. (laughs) So weird. So weird. The great Matthew Huff, my buddy Matthew Huff, writes in and says, As a high school lifeguard, I know it's rule 101 to not follow a drowning person in the water without a flotation device because they're panicked and they'll just drown you, too.
2: So really, the Gawkers deserve an MVP point for following safety guidelines. Matt, stop it. Stop it. They're on an island. Safety is out the window like One World.
1: That's not why the gawkers were gawking. They weren't gawking for safety. They were gawking because they're cowards. They're cravens. <laughs> they're, they're, they're absolute cravens. Uh, John Krause, who, of course, we will, we will be hearing more from, who's actually going to be joining me to talk about Watership Down at some point in the not-too-distant future. So John Krauss, prolific uh, Down the Hatch contributor, you'll be hearing from in the not-too-distant future. Um, very slow in my in my Watership Downing. So how, pod- how far?
2: What's the what's the progress? Give me uh-huh. a percentage.
1: Slow. is like uh, like thirty pages. I'm, I'm really I'm really taking my time. So that podcast may take a while to happen, but it will happen for sure. Uh, John Krauss writes it and says, "Wouldn't it have been hilarious if when Jack was running through the jungle chasing the ghost of his dad, he ran into a nude son who was bathing, and then that just became a weird running joke throughout the series that son just can't get a moment of privacy to herself." I I don't know if I think that's funny. Yeah, so yeah, is, hilarious is an interesting <laughs> choice of words. John, we're gonna have to talk. We're gonna have to talk about that. Uh John Densford, uh John Densford, my cousin, writes in and says, uh, Jack is my favorite character, and I hated Locke from the very get-go. Locke sucks. Cousin
2: John, we're gonna have to have some words about that wow. as well. John, much from. like I I disparage a fellow Michael, John disparages a fellow John Burry.
1: Yeah, Locke sucks is a horrible take. Uh that take I will I will burn in the fire along with the B-O-D-Y S that we burned at the end of Walkabout. And the uh, bees, perhaps. Yes. Uh and that and last week when we tweeted out the link to uh to White Rabbit Mike, uh the the great Dalton Ross responded to our podcast uh and noted that he is currently in the process of preparing an 80,000 word oral history on Biling and the mystery of Jack's tattoos. Uh, so I certainly hope that some version of that will come true uh, in the year uh, 2020 when we get to Stranger in a Strange Land. If people can remind us to, to beg Dalton Ross to at least spend 80,000 words on a podcast talking about the tattoos and Biling, I think that that would be hysterical.
2: There is an audience for it, Dalton. Don't worry, even if it's just the two of us. I also did notice that the uh, aforementioned uh, Doc Jensen himself also did like those tweets as well.
1: Oh, that's great. That's great. That's wonderful. Um, All right. Other number two, previously on Lost Lives. Jordan from Wisconsin uh, did the Jacobs work and went back and listened to the Quancast, as it was called, Mike, in 2014, October 26th. 2014, 10 years after House of the Rising Sun oh, aired wow. is when you and I got together for That's that That's almost podcast. 5 years ago. I know. Uh I I don't like to go back and listen to myself. Uh I feel like it's it's always very disappointing and awkward. Uh so I don't think that I'm ever going to go back and listen to the Quan cast as it was called, especially because Jordan from Wisconsin lists out all of the different Quan puns <laughs> lord that we generated is no. this too is this too embarrassing for no. me to to list out for you can you it's
2: can, no, it's, it's you? out there in the universe already let's let's dig up that page because look we i'm i miss very much in my puns much more than i hit and i can only assume that ratio carried over five years ago
1: all right so this is what we said apparently i have no memory of any of this uh, but i fully believe it uh jordan from wisconsin says uh we said quants upon a time all right, I like that Quantities what does that mean or, or Quantalties uh probably instead of qualities. <laughs>
2: Oh yes! <laughs> uh, uh, I like, I'll actually like this now. It's like <laughs> It's like bringing up really fun puns that I like. Oh god, <laughs> this is terrible. Quancept. Okay, that's a good
1: one. Uh, quan per week. <laughs> that's uh, like
2: one per week.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I think at the time I was trying to do a rewatch. I think at the time Lost Lives, we were attempting a rewatch, and I was trying to do it with a different guest every single week, and eventually it fizzled out. The trick to these things is you got to have a Sturdy, reliable partner in crime, otherwise it doesn't work. Uh, you, and and I, you and I, You and
2: I gotta be. <laughs> what did you just say? I said, I said partner in crime. I hate you so much. <laughs> I hate you
1: so much, Mike. Oh, it's so good. Uh, quantum entanglement is something that that's we said. That's a good one. Yeah, that's what we've got. You and I've got a quantum entanglement with one another. Uh, we said Quan song. Of I don't course. think that's so good. Uh, lost Quan Portunity. <laughs> We also said quan fusing, which is stupid. Uh quanundrum. We said quan speriment instead of experiment. <laughs>
2: That's not there's not even like a, a link there. Like there's no X in Quan. I'm just gonna go out on
1: a limb and said that one was you. I don't feel like That's, that one was me.
2: <laughs> I, I don't know. I just I'm honestly surprised that we got even this deep. Are there more?
1: Yeah, there are Quan Solo.
2: I like that one.
1: Quan Quan? <laughs> I don't know. That's uh, so stupid! And Luke Kwan Walker. I don't know why. The, I, don't know. I,
2: I have think, regrets.
1: I have a lot of regrets. Uh, Kwan Kwan. I have a lot of regrets. This is terrible. Uh, apparently, this podcast was recorded uh, before your wedding, Mike. October 26, 2014. That tracks for you, right? This is a test. Do you know your wedding anniversary?
2: Uh, yes. My wedding anniversary is June 27, 2015.
1: Okay. So, several months in advance. Um all right, let's get out of the past. When's uh, my
2: wedding anniversary? <laughs>
1: yeah, when's mine? Uh other number 3. I remember when your when your wedding was cuz we had a a nice text message uh exchange I think like the night before. Yeah, the night during before. my during my rehearsal dinner. Yeah, and it was my brother's bachelor party which was for many reasons a very memorable occasion. Uh, <laughs> can't 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 get too deep into that we've got we've got kids listening all right other number 3 uh let's talk about the gawkers patricia riley writes in and says so i just started rewatching House of the rising sun and Jin is pummeling michael and trying to drown him and i had to pause to write and say freaking gawkers
2: what the hell <laughs> Yeah, Patricia. Uh, I this love is why it. they're getting another LVP point. I this love week. it. I've, I've, we've put everyone on Gawker watch now. Yeah,
1: yeah. And Stefan Johnson also noted that uh, during the "Live Together, Die Alone" speech, that when Jack says, "like we need uh, we need people to go at first light to go back to the caves," that only three people volunteered: Charlie, Kate, and Locke. And that's it.
2: No yeah. one else is going to go get the water for everybody uh no i got something to do down by the beach today so i can't i'm sorry
1: unbelievable all right other number four uh question i uh, something that you've been hinting at was a softer gin cut out of the episode and this is from jess sterling who writes in originally in a scene that was cut sun's first act of assertiveness against gin was her walking away from him while he explains why he moved them to the caves it also had gin apologizing to michael and walt for the watch blow up Why do you think they pushed these two story points for later episodes? This episode ends with Jin still being the bad guy and Sun still being submissive to her husband. Also, just a small piece of trivia. Throughout the show, we hear Jin and Sun calling each other what sounds like Yobo, but the subtitles simply say their names. In reality, this is a Korean term of endearment that's similar to honey or deer. Uh, I don't think honey as in what the bees are craving. Yeah, those Um,
2: bees going for some Yobo on Charlie's face. Yeah. I think that this is... uh, I think that this is,
1: it was a good choice. I think it was a good choice to push Jin's redemption arc to late in the season, especially because it, it allows us to have that really emotional reunion between Jin and Sun right before the Raft launch. I don't know, I, It's they're playing the long game here, right? Mm. Like, they're playing out the fact that, like, they're hoping that they're going to have more time to tell these stories, and if they do, when they eventually show that Jin is not the scoundrel that you think he is, that he actually does have more uh, dimension to him um, I feel like it's going to land with more impact. I think if Jin just like had like the full turnaround in this episode, in the space of this episode, given everything else that's going on, uh, I think that it would have been... Uh, I, I don't know. I don't think it would have played quite as strongly.
2: I agree. I think if it was like a one-time thing, if it was more like a sitcom, where it's like, okay, we got to wrap this arc up by the end, it would make sense. But there was a lot more time, and there's a lot more of to sort of figure out with the relationships. And I think it's more... It's weird to say things are realistic in loss considering the circumstances, but it's more realistic where, you know, I don't think he would immediately uh be forgiven slash forgive people. I think that those relationships and those moments and those conflicts are going to stew. Michael telling Jin, stay away from my son is going to hold a lot of weight until we get to the raft when they're invariably paired together. So I think it's, it's a good choice as the Jin Defender. It would have been nice, but we're going to get some redemption down the line, which I think makes it taste a little bit sweeter.
1: Okay, well, Amber is going to show up as the Jin Defender. This is other number five, and Amber has written a defense of Su Suquan. Amber writes in and says, "I feel I'm going to need to come forward in, de- in the defense of Jin. I expect there will be a lot of Jin hating, and I want to get ahead of that. Not so much, Amber. I think people, you know, Jin we, we've we've turned the corner, on Jin. And in any case, I feel like the defense is worth reading." Uh, Amber says, "I expect people will talk about how Jin is a major jerk, and then eventually changes and grows. And certainly, Jin changes and grows. But I don't believe Jin was ever a major jerk. I feel motivation and intention matter a lot. So with that said, I think all of his actions on the island and back in flashback world are done in." service of loving and protecting son." The first time on the island that we see Jin is the initial crash where Jin is screaming and trying to find honey, honey, yo bull. Uh, not the bees. Uh the first time we really <laughs> no, could <can> see- <laughs> imagine he says honey and
2: all the bees just turn swarm. You're like, yeah, where's the honey? Now just imagining Jin is Nicholas Cage.
1: Not the bees! The bees no
2: uh, well, and he dresses up in a polar bear outfit and punches someone in the face. <laughs> That'd be great.
1: The first time we really see Jin and Sun interacting is when Jin tells Sun to button her blouse. Sun's defiance and desire to dress as she pleases is more indicative of her independence and broadened worldview, but it doesn't mean that Jin is a jerk for trying to uphold what he believes, and has been taught by his culture to be appropriate. I don't think it's fair to expect Jin to conform with Western ideas of behavior, especially knowing that Jin was not raised in an environment where he was exposed to different ideologies. The rest of Jin's interactions with Sun are basically Jin trying to take care of Sun. When he tells her to drink, he's not being a jerk. It comes from a place of concern. When he tells her to not worry about interacting with the other survivors because he'll tell her what to do, he's merely acting as a protector and provider as his culture demands of a husband. Even beating the living daylights out of Michael is ultimately in an effort to protect Sun, when at the airport, Jin is told that if he doesn't deliver that watch, he'll lose Sun. There we go. Mr. Pike essentially threatens Sun's life if that watch is not delivered. In that moment, not only is Michael preventing him from delivering that watch should they be rescued, but his inability to deliver the watch is... Could possibly mean Sun's life will be in jeopardy. On that point, at least, Amber, Mike Bloom, co-signs it, and I have come around to it as well. Final point from Amber is, Off the island, Jin is damaged and distant with Sun, which understandably puts strain on their relationship. Ultimately, however, we know this is because he's trying to provide for her and to protect her from the truth about her father. Uh, hashtag it's complicated. I was It's would say.
2: complicated. Stop it.
1: We're better than this.
2: I was I was held my tongue when you said turn the corner and I almost said turn the corner with no, a kw.
1: <laughs> stop. We've grown. We've changed. But we always go back. Have we really? Have At we really? At the end, yeah. Have we really? Um, all right. Other number six. Uh, let's talk some cuffs, some handcuffs. Stefan Johnson writes in it says, It'll be one season and three episodes before Jin gets his handcuff removed. I'm probably reading too much into it, but do the handcuffs have a greater significance? Jin handcuffed to working for son's a-hole dad. Son's handcuffed to her marriage to Jin. Everybody handcuffed to this crazy island. And Ben Martel adds, Is Jin's handcuff his equivalent of Charlie's moth? Where once it comes off, Jin's redemption arc is complete.
2: Mm. He also I mean, notes was... that
1: handcuffs are a good metaphor for the foolhardy commitment you and I, Mike, have made to down the hatch. Which uh, I wear this handcuff proudly.
2: Yeah, just as kinky too. Uh, uh-huh. I I think that I mean I would argue that his redemption arc is kind of complete before the uh, the cuff actually gets sawn off in the hatch. But I I really like this idea that I think the idea of confinement is represented in so many ways. Locke was confined to a wheelchair. Kate was someone who was confined to cuffs many a time before getting to the island. Uh, And it's also this really fun idea where, like we said, Jin is going to end up wearing this cuff on his wrist for an entire season. And it's a fun little, I don't know, tie into the fact that the reason why he gets that in the first place is because he goes after another piece of wrist jewelry in a watch. So he ends up getting his own sort of representative watch in a way.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Other number seven, we're talking about the the moment where Sun reveals that she speaks English. Uh, Sarah Not Stripes from Canada writes in and says, For me, the revelation that Sun speaks English was just as big a moment as finding out that Locke was in a wheelchair. Even on the rewatch, I get goosebumps. I remember on my first watch that there was something almost jarring about hearing her speak English when I had never heard Hyunjin Kim's voice speaking my own language before. Uh, And Dallin Servo also writes in and says, Where does Sun, knowing how to speak English, rank in the lost twists i think a lot of people often forget about this early twist where does it rank i don't know about where it ranks but i i remember being stunned by it yeah. um you know i i think like it, like in hindsight like it, it made immediate sense but i think again because i was i i had familiarity with daniel de kim uh playing uh playing this character from 24 uh i remember being like oh wow so he's like not gonna speak english on this show at all and like i kind of kept waiting for there to be a twist on on that front so so sun was a bit of a blind spot for me in the early going of lost so when she stepped forward i think like the moment that like she came into the into the forest and like was peeping on michael i was like okay something's about to give uh but up until that moment like it was not even something that was really on my radar i don't think
2: Yeah, I mean, remember, this was the second episode of Lost I ever saw, so this promptly blew my mind because I didn't realize a show could do twists like this. It definitely sticks out in my mind for that reason, but I can understand, especially around things like the Walkabout reveal, it unfortunately sort of pales in comparison to it. But I feel like of the big reveals we have for these Lost characters, I think it certainly ranks up there.
1: All right. Uh, we're going to talk about Bopo a little bit here in other number eight, which comes to us from Scott French, who is going <laughs> to have some uh, some indignation, uh, some, some righteous fury to unload. And I will try to channel that from Scott French. Scott French writes, I get why Son wants to leave Jin at this point. But she's giving her dog away! Oh, we
2: found out who wrote the series Bible.
1: I guess the house of the rising sun is not a forever home. Ooh. Jin is not blameless either. A new addition to the family made as a lark because he's an absent husband isn't the best motivation. When we later learned that Bopo was a gift from a grateful business associate, taking it away from his daughter and likely a very loving family, it doesn't get much better. This lack of responsibility foreshadows the fate of their daughter. I like Jin, and Sun is arguably my favorite character on this show of great characters. Wow. Uh, But these two are like the real-life friends that you adore but hope never have children. Uh, I mean,
2: look, it could be worse. She could be like, all right, we'll just leave the dog there and see what happens. You know, she wanted to get properly taken care of. And to be fair, when Sun does make her way back as part of the Oceanic Six, they do give Bopo back, you know? So I, I think that I would actually think it's a very smart logical intelligent move than just being like yeah I'll let the dog off his leash one day and he'll just sort of wander around because lord knows i'm not going to take care of him she needed
1: to get out of that situation and she she needed to get out of there in the way that she was going to get out of there and she wasn't going to leave bopo with Jin because what if Jin was really furious and who knows what he would do i would to say bopo? well bopo
2: might just like tear out Jin's jugular
1: i guess that's possible Uh, But she, at least she had it lined up. She's like, her decorator friend was going to be Bopo's new caretaker. So it's not like she didn't have uh, a container. I'm sure it was very difficult for Sun to leave Bopo.
2: Yeah, because I don't want Bopo in the care of Mr. Paik. Because then it just becomes more of a badass.
1: Other number nine, beach people versus shelter people. Some questions about this uh, uh, Dylan Servo writes in, who also, by the way, no uh, no additions to the dude count this week. Yeah, the Chinese
2: to counts Sager. at two, but the yeah. dude counts I know. at zero.
1: Yeah, I hope that that's coming close to an end. Uh, Down Servo writes, Why is Saeed so against the move to the caves that he's mobilizing people against Jack's idea? He approaches Michael as if he's trying to form an alliance. What's his motive? Eric Divestein writes it and says, Has anyone even seen the signal fire that's being referenced? Are we sure Said didn't make it up to avoid living with Jack? <laughs> um, I think that fire at the end of the episode, is that the signal fire? Do we count that?
2: Yeah, I would say so. But I think what I don't even think it's pertaining to the signal fire. I know Saeed says it, but I feel like his uh, Team Transceiver Part 2 mission is more so what pertains to the beach, right? I'm assuming he's still trying to work on getting that signal triangulated, and I can assume going to the caves really stymies that.
1: Yeah, I think so.
2: I don't know why uh it, it Fitzy
1: asks us, are we Team Jack or Team Said? And I don't understand why we can't be both. I don't understand why there can't be a group of people that go to the caves who are thirsty, or maybe uh the weaker of the pack, who require some shelter, who would not be able to withstand a one-on-one confrontation with the Predator, uh, who would would be obliterated in that battle, and why that can't be one group, and why Saeed can't be leading the beach people, and why they can't have designated go-betweens. I don't know why this has to be an us versus them, Uh, Mike. I agree. I feel like this is short-sighted stuff.
2: And they both have benefits. Like, yes, the caves do protect you from the Predator and also provide fresh water easily. The beach is good to flag down others driving boats that might be able to steal children. So I feel like yeah. there there is a way to sort of divide. And I think that Jack was fine with that inevitably. I think he was just not fine with Kate specifically. Be Like he says, you know, someone else could stay behind and keep watch. Uh, maybe he feel like ideally only a handful of people would stay on the beach while the majority of people lived in the caves. But it ends up being more of an even split from what I remember.
1: All right. Other number 10. Some people who also have noted that Jack's interactions with Kate in this episode were not great. Uh, Dave Baker writes in and says, how much does Jack's inept flirting influence Kate's decision not to live in the caves? And Jordan from Wisconsin says, what exactly did Kate do to make Jack say, Kate, how'd you get to be this way? She just decided to stay at the beach, just like a bunch of other people.
2: Yeah, uh, but, but she was also like giving him a little bit of toot. As well, you know, like she's she like she could have just said, hey, I want to be, you know, I, I just want to be on the beach to flag down and rescue. And so she says, I don't want to be Eve. And he's like, what did I do? You know, yeah. so I, I I can understand why, you know, he might be a little uh, beleaguered by that, even though I think, Kate, how'd you get to be this way is a horrible thing to ask when you want to get someone on your side.
1: Yes. What, why right. are you like this? Yeah, I don't like it. I don't like it at all. Uh, all right, I mentioned the extra in the background uh, towards the end of House of the Rising Sun who who reminded me of Wilford Brimley. So I took the liberty to carve out a space for myself here in the 1516 Others section. Uh, Mike, do you know what the Brimley cocoon line is? No. Okay, so here's here's the Brimley cocoon line. The Brimley cocoon line is a tracker, uh, it's a Twitter account that tracks when people have reached 18,530 days of life on the planet Earth, a.k.a. the same age that Wilford Brimley was when Cocoon <laughs> was released in the 1980s. Uh, Wilford Brimley, who in that film uh, looks like he could have easily been you know, in his late 60s, early 70s, but in fact was just barely past 50, uh, 18,530 days of life. Is this a surprising statistic to you, Mike?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm just trying to do the math in my head, and I never knew this thing existed. I'll admit I'm not a person who uh, remembers much of Cocoon, if I've even seen it, so I I didn't realize this was a legitimate statistic.
1: Yeah, it is a It is a, it is a very legitimate statistic, uh, and it, it. it's a great Twitter account that when famous people cross... The Brimley Cocoon line, uh, the Twitter account, acknowledges these people who have crossed the Brimley Cocoon line. And it is often very surprising who has reached the same age that Wilford Brimley was when Cocoon was released in theaters. So I wanted to track who has reached the Brimley Cocoon line of the lost series regulars. Who, Who is safe? Who has passed? Who is soon to pass? Uh, do you have any guesses as for uh, who who has who has already crossed outside of like the obvious ones like Terry O'Quinn? Yeah, I was gonna say he's, uh, he's sixty-seven. Bernard. Michael Emerson is sixty-five. Malcolm David Kelly is four thousand years old.
2: Uh, <laughs> yeah, I would say uh, Jacob and the Man in Black passed. Yeah, I don't have I don't have Richard track. Richard that, Alpert definitely passed the cocoon line. He's past the
1: cocoon line. He's fifty-one years old. Um, I think one that may be a little surprise, Harold Perrineau is 56 years old.
2: Um,
1: that feels like a surprise to me. Matthew Fox has passed. He's crossed the line. He's 53 years old. You have to stop
2: saying they passed because that really makes it sound like very bad. Crossed the line.
1: He crossed the line. He crossed the line.
2: Daniel Day Kim, man of the hour. He's crossed the Brimley
1: Cocoon line. He's 51 years old.
2: Okay. Okay. Now, what about some of our female castaways?
1: Uh, Evangeline Lilly is safe. She's not, she has is, she is many, many miles to go before she reaches the line. She's 40 years old. Uh, Yunjin Kim, she's in the yellow. She's looking at it. She's not far away. She's got five years before she reaches the Brimley-Cocoon line. Um, some people who will be crossing it this year. Ooh. Josh Holloway will be crossing the line in roughly 200 days. Wow. Josh Holloway will reach the age that Wilford Brimley was when Cocoon was released in theaters. Uh, Ken Lung. A.K. Miles Strom, he will cross the line in 2020. His fellow freighter, Jeremy Davies, a.k.a. Daniel Faraday, he will cross it in 2020 as well. And I think Elizabeth Mitchell is going to cross it uh, by early 2021.
2: Mm, it feels like we're doing some sort of bastardized entertainment tonight, like, what are the celebrity mm, birthdays? Yes, yes, yes.
1: All right, let's talk about something a little more serious. Other number 12, lost portrayal of race and social issues. We touched upon this Earlier, and people had a lot to say about that, including John Krause, the aforementioned, who says, The conflict between Jin and Michael, which Michael interprets to be racism, is in reference to some very real racial tensions that emanate from Los Angeles, where Michael is from, and the Rodney King riots of the early 90s. This and Said being from, quote unquote, a terrorist country, uh, are really the closest that Lost ever gets to covering social issues. They pretty quickly veer into sci fi territory and leave the real stuff behind. Sarah from Canada notes that something I love about season one that I think we really lose as the plots get thicker and the characters get worn in is the more honest portrayals of the challenges and tensions that can arise when you throw together a diverse group of people from a number of very different backgrounds. In this episode alone, we have a discussion about tension between black people and Korean people, which is meaningful to Michael as an American, but not to Saeed as an Iraqi. Uh, Michael having to find a way to communicate these tensions to his son without passing on any racial bias of his own Hurley showing some ignorance by continuing to refer to the Quans as Chinese and, of course, Sawyer's Rolodex of nicknames for Saeed. I feel like Lost really ends up sacrificing these more granular and realistic dynamics in the face of larger plot points. And while that might be understandable, it's a strength the first season has over the following seasons for me. I do think that this, like, uh, this groundedness and this level of reality and the early going of Lost is another big argument in favor of why season 1 is my favorite season of the show.
2: Yeah, it's because it's more simplistic. Right? Like like Sarah says, it's less plot-based, it's more so in hey, here's a bunch of people stranded on an island. What the hell are they going to do? Whereas not to say that they get away from the characters in future seasons, but it's much more about how do these characters handle certain big mysteries? On the island. I think the first season does a remarkable job, maybe even better than any other show in existence, in setting up this incredibly diverse, opinionated group of characters and building out their stories so we know who they are as people before we go down the hatch from a certain perspective and yeah it does stink to lose some of that uh you know even the flashbacks after season one for some of our season one characters aren't great because we're they're sort of just trying to find new ways to rework these characters that we already know so so much about and this episode paired especially with in translation is a great example of that
1: Other number 13, our first look at time travel. Daniel Brennan writes and it says, Revealing Adam and Eve in such an early episode obviously created an opportunity for the writers to reveal something later in the show's run. The best idea that ultimately won were the man in black and mother, which I think works well. I am someone who likes Across the Sea. With that said... Who else do you think the writers considered to be in the cave? Uh, Ben Martel notes that the script originally had Jack saying that the bodies could date from centuries earlier, despite his fabric degradation estimate. Um, Do you think that there was ever anybody else in mind? Or do you think that ultimately Damon Lindelof's idea always was that this was going to be some ancient entities that were going to have like a big thing to say about... Uh, the ultimate cosmic themes of Lost.
2: Uh, no, I mean, I guess it comes down to what Javier said before about how Jacob and the Man in Black weren't really a conversation in season one. You know, so I wonder if they just sort of kept the door open, like to with the Rousseau stuff, as to, okay, there were people that were on this island before, but I don't know if it goes necessarily back to, okay, it's going to be these two, you know, these mythical people that are the first to arrive on the island at the big battle of good and evil that they represent that transcends millennia. Uh, It could just be like, here were two people from a village that used to be here and they played with rocks and they put rocks in their pocket. Or it just could be a burial ceremony. I, I, I don't know how much they had built in terms of that plot bridge at the point where they brought this idea up.
1: Okay. A couple of final others uh, that are less connected to House of the Rising Sun and are a little bit more generally lost. Uh, Other number 14 comes from Angel Woodrum, who writes in and says, Something that I'm realizing on this second watch almost 10 years after Lost is just how great the female characters are. Of course, women are underrepresented in the show, as a listener pointed out on last week's feedback section. Uh, In addition to that, my high school brain, with its internalized unchecked (laughs) sexism, didn't allow me to see the depth of Kate's character. I remember thinking... She was just a love interest to Sawyer and Jack, but she's so much more, even just in these first eight episodes that I've rewatched so far. So shame on you, high school angel. Those are Angel's own words. Uh, for not respecting Kate <laughs> more, this applies to other female characters too. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that just in talking about uh, Yunjin Kim's performance as Sun, as I hope that we've articulated uh, the, the great depths of of our love for that performance specifically, I think that son is one of the great unsung characters of this show.
2: Yeah, I completely agree. And look, Angel, don't be too hard on yourselves. We all have whack opinions in high school, but that the brain matures and we naturally gain new, better opinions. So, just the truth is, we have whack
1: it. opinions our entire lives. Unfortunately, uh, yeah, we're we're constantly failing. Uh, sometimes we've got good ideas, more often than not. We've got bad ideas. Can you tell that we're almost three hours into a podcast? <laughs> the stamina is depleting. Uh, the final other, uh, speaking of which, <laughs> the final other uh, is from Katie Phipps, who has a really funny, uh, fi- funny feedback. It says, my husband is the person who got me into Lost. He watched it as it aired and has seen the series three times through. I first watched it about two years ago with him during one of his rewatches, and I am again watching with you guys now. Yesterday, I was talking with him about how you all have no patience for the people who are like, they were dead the whole time. It's purgatory. To my surprise, my husband revealed that he is one of the people who believes that they were dead the whole time. What kind of argument can I make to prove to him that he is wrong? Should
2: I just keep listening? Help me win this one. Katie, I believe the only answer is divorce. (laughs) It's over! <laughs> That's it. That's irreconcilable differences. He does not get the ending to Lost. And the judge no, says, I no. understand. And the no, judge we it- can
1: fix this. If Jin and Son can work it out, you guys can so work So you it need out. to
2: get a Sharpay who understands the ending of Lost. That's yes. the true
1: the true reconciliation.
2: All right, Katie, here's what you got to do. You got to
1: get a dog. You need the dog Bopo, okay? Uh, the dog Bopo ideally can speak English. Uh, we will, will speak to your husband and say, hey, I'm a talking dog in Popo, and uh, I've been listening to this podcast called Lost Down the Hatch, and the hosts there, they talk for a very long time about Lost every week, too long, they go way too long on this podcast, and they insist that the, 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 whatever happened, happened, everyone was alive, and there was no purgatory, except at the end where there was like some light purgatory. But it was, it was light purgatory. minimal purgatory it was it very it was very soft purgatory that occurred at the end of the show, but everything else was real. All of that stuff was real. Yeah. And Katie, if that doesn't work, keep us posted and we'll workshop some other ideas for how to convince your husband that he is wrong, because he's absolutely wrong. He's a hundred percent wrong.
2: I think that honestly, just show the last scene where it's, you know, Jack and whatever embodiment of Christian Shepherd it is, where Jack literally says like, did I die? And Christian literally outlines the entire twist. Yeah. I think that's all you need. And He maybe, says, no,
1: everything that happened to you was real. Everyone dies
2: eventually. You died and now you're here. But that doesn't mean you've always been dead. And then, if that doesn't work, get your new dog to do a <laughs> lip dub of the scene so that he understands it coming from a different animal. How many people, Mike,
1: do you think we will inspire to go out and get dogs named Bopo? Over the course of our time here on Down the Hatch.
2: Oh boy! Uh, if it's just
1: one, I feel like it was a success.
2: If they do, th- can they? Does they have to do like a middle name of our combined names to make Josh, sure that that Josh like a, Mike? Yeah, that it's like an actual like <laughs> inside joke, and we just didn't happen to piggyback on a couple that named their dog Bopo at the same time.
1: Um. Yeah. Uh, sure. Uh, what the, would it be Mosh?
2: Yes, Bopo Mosh.
1: Bopo Mosh. All right. Send us your pictures of Bopo Mosh when you get them. All right, let's get to 23 points. This is where we give out MVP points and LVP points, the the stars of the hour and the losers of the hour. Who won House of the Rising Sun? Who lost House of the Rising Sun? I will be giving out two MVP points this week. Mike will be giving out three. Mike will be giving out two LVP points, and I will be giving out three. And just to set the deck of what we're at right now, Kate is the leader with five MVP points. Locke and Jack both have four. The Monster has three. Saeed Jarrah has two. Claire Littleton has one. The Peach Man, Ray Mullen, clocking in with one MVP point. Seth Norris, the brother of Chuck and John, they are minus one apiece. The Marshall, minus one for dying, as was the reason why we took went away from seth norris the pilot the boars they're minus one christian Shepard minus one he also died margo Shepard minus one the gawkers have lost a point christy the oceanic agent controversially lost a point shannon rutherford is in minus one michael dawson minus two sawyer minus three he'll make that up randy nations minus three it will only plummet the further we see of randy nations in the future and boone is also sitting at negative three all right mike Who gets your first MVP point for this episode?
2: A little girl said the Sun would come out tomorrow, but it's coming out today in the form of MVP points. Got to give it to Sun here. Big revelation on her part, plus Junjin Kim's fantastic performance, especially in those flashback scenes. You got to give it to her.
1: Fully co-signed. I give Sun an MVP point as well. And in fact, I would give her two MVP points this week, if not for the fact that I have to reserve One MVP point, clearly, for Bopo the dog. Uh, So Bopo the dog gets one for me, and Sun gets one for me as well, for all the reasons you've outlined.
2: Well, let's keep it in the Quan family. This might be a bit controversial. I'm going to give a point to Jin. Hey! Whoa! Okay! (laughs) Well, because, yes, I understand that his particular portrayal in this episode is not looking great, but I love the argument that was provided in a previous other, and honestly, I feel like Look, we're a spoiler-filled podcast, we look at things from the context of the entire series, and if you look at these events, knowing Jin's character and knowing especially how he comes into things from in translation, I feel like it really fills out his character and makes him look very, very different and very caring when he's portrayed as anything but in this episode. So I'm going to give him a point here. It's biased, but what the hell.
1: Okay, you get another point to hand out because I'm giving one to Son. I'm giving one to Bopo the dog, and you get a third MVP point to award.
2: Let's give it to John Burry here. Let's give it to oh, Locke. Okay, Mr. Locke. Yeah, I think that, you know, Locke is still in his wise old sage point where he's not, you know, going into crazy territory. And he sets Charlie on a really good path that's going to really come to fruition as soon as next episode. And I think, you know, the fact that he out himself as a secret drive shaft fan as well is a really fun character note.
1: All right. So Locke gets a point that brings him up to five. Uh, he is tied with Kate Austin uh, for the most MVP points at the moment. I've got three LVP points to award, uh, and I will, I will give two of them right now. Uh, Adam and Eve will oh, each
2: Mary and Jesus.
1: lose a point. The Man in Black, a.k.a. The Monster Man, uh, and Allison Janney, uh, who has not even yet appeared on the show, they're both losing a point, and of course, as is my tradition here in the twenty-three point sections, it's just for the for the for the for the crime of of dying. <laughs> it, they died, and so they lose a point. But have, Josh, it was but it was forty to fifty years ago. I have to be consistent, <laughs> so they each lose a point. Who do you have as an LVP?
2: This might be a bit controversial. I'm gonna give a I'm gonna take a point away from Kate. Oh wow! Okay. I so, uh, so why so lock might have passed her in the MVP thing. I'm I'm just hung up on, and I know a couple, we had a couple pieces of feedback about this as well. It just doesn't settle to me this whole thing about, you know, the, oh, you and Jack are being viewed as, a, as being in a relationship, so she doesn't want to necessarily do that. You know, I, I feel like somebody had said, I forget who, that like they really liked Kate up until this point, And this is maybe when we start to see Kate get a bit away from that character that was really interesting in the first few episodes. It's just a character note that doesn't necessarily resound with me that I don't want to be Eve type of thing. So I, I'm going to dock her one for that.
1: Okay. Uh, so it's a sea change. Uh, uh <laughs> I was going to make a bad Charlie joke, uh, <laughs> where Kate was in the lead and Locke was right in uh, the running for it. And Locke is now leading the MVP category with five points total and Kate at four. Uh, so somebody has finally pushed past Kate. Her, her reign was strong, uh, but it is, it is currently at an end.
2: Yes, uh, but I'm going to give another one. We mentioned this before. Let's make it pay off, Gawkers. You're not off the hook. You're yeah, getting another sure. point, Doc. Two in a row. For sure. All right. Well, speaking of Doc,
1: I'm going to take a point away from Jack. Ooh, I'm take a point away from tit Jack. Tit for tat. You know what he he gets he gets people to move to the caves, but he's over aggressive with Kate, and he's wearing an awful shirt, and it can't be forgiven. I can't forgive it. Can't forgive the shirt choice.
2: You need a change Uh, in wardrobe and attitude, Jack.
1: Yes. All right. So, this is uh, how it stands. Locke is our leader with five points. Kate at four. Jack at three. The monster at two. Said at two. Sun on the board at two. Jin on the board with one. Claire remains with one. The Peach Man has one. Bopo the dog. Welcome to the show. One point for Bopo. Dog show. Uh, <laughs> clap, 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 clap! Seth Norris, the pilot, brother of Chuck and John, minus one. The Marshall, minus one. The Boers, minus one. Christian Shepherd, minus one. Margot Shepherd, minus one. Chrissy, the Oceanic agent, minus one. Allison Janney, welcome to the show, minus one. Shannon, minus one. Michael, Slight Redemption, minus two. The Gawkers are falling further, minus two. Sawyer, minus three. Randy Nations, minus three. Boone, minus three. Let's get to four point two stars. Our episode. Rankings and just to reset this, we had some questions about how this works. This is how it works on a scale of zero to 4.2. We are asking you to rate every episode of Lost alongside with us. I will give a rating. Mike will give a rating. We will then average our listeners who have submitted their ratings as a third data point. And then we will combine those three points, my point, Mike's point and the audience score for our final official average. Score. Does that make sense, Mike?
2: Yeah, it does from my perspective.
1: Okay, hopefully it makes sense for your perspective as well. We have been getting a lot of people who've been sending in their 4.2 star rankings of each episode of Lost. Uh, we will not lock in the final tally for the first season of Lost until we finish the first season. So even though we are through uh, the House of the Rising Sun, you can still send your ratings in. This is a flexible document until we are past the finale of season one uh so why don't we start mike with where we are ranking the house of the rising sun uh why don't you go first how does this episode stack up for you on a scale of zero to 4.2
2: yeah i'm surprise surprise if you have not been listening to the past three hours i'm very high on this episode much like charlie until Locke took those drugs away I'm giving it a 3.8. There's a lot of really great stuff in there. We found a lot out about the Jin and Sun relationship. All the flashback scenes, I think, are super interesting in the various ways. You know, definitely bolstered by two fantastic performances. Big twist in sun speaking English. We get the uh, the big cave beach schism. Charlie starts to give into sobriety. I dock some points because of the uh, because you know some some of the Jack Kate stuff we talked about is not great. And you know, compared to Walkabout pilot and White Rabbit, this is a great episode of Lost. But those are legendary episodes. So yeah. by comparison, three point eight I think is still a pretty lofty score. Yeah, I had,
1: uh, in my original thinking of the early episodes of Lost, I think I had this behind Tabula Rasa, and having reviewed both of them so quickly after one another, I think this is a better episode than Tabula Rasa. So originally, I was going to have them about the same. I I rated Tabula Rasa 3.5. I was going to do the same for House of the Rising Sun. I think I'm going to go 3.6 with House of the Rising Sun. Uh, I think this is a really good episode of Lost. I think almost every episode of Lost is a really good episode of Lost. Uh so this is like a basic score that I will probably be uh, slapping on to most episodes of Lost. <laughs> I w- I would guess uh but I will I will put 3.6 on it. Uh I think it's it's better than I remembered. Uh and that that moment where where Sun reveals that she speaks English is still such a great moment. Um the audience average as it currently stands people who have submitted their scores for House of the Rising Sun 3.4 uh which combined 3.4 on the floor, uh, which combined with Mike's score and my score gets us to 3.59 stars. Uh, so this is the current ranking of five episodes of Lost if we're combining the pilot. In 5th, uh, Tabula Rasa is, is bringing up The Rear with 3.4. Uh, in 4th, House of the Rising Sun with 3.59. In 3rd, White Rabbit with 3.97. In 2nd, The Pilot, 4.12. And in 1st place, Walkabout with 4.16. That is the current Down the Hatch ranking of the episodes of Lost, which is something we are tracking throughout Down the Hatch to get... The most scientifically decided upon episode rankings of Lost in the history of time.
2: There's that son of a scientist coming out. Yeah, I told you. I told you. All right. So how did we do
1: on time? Did we go, did we go under 108 minutes finally? No, we did not go under
2: 108 minutes.
1: Okay. Well, good news, Mike Bloom. Uh, we're revamping the rules. Woo! We're revamping the rules. We had a great suggestion from a bunch of people over the past few weeks uh, but it was it was a great articulation from Elise Demeter who wrote into us with uh, with a suggested rule change that we're gonna we're gonna implement from from this point forward unless it causes a riot. And I hope it doesn't cause a riot. Uh, Elise wrote in and said I had a suggestion regarding the forty two to one hundred and eight minute rule. I'm pretty sure the reason he had that one hundred eight minute rule was to wrangle in the number forty two as well as one hundred eight. I could be wrong about this, of course. You're not. That's basically why, and we underestimated our own... <laughs> our so you're, you're going to blow your voice if you keep whispering ah. in the head. Uh, Elise continues, Since you recently added the 4.2 star rating, you no longer need that lower bound number. Now the only thing you need to do is find a way to integrate number 108. You've already proven that you're going to go over 108 minutes almost always, so why not repurpose the use of the number? Since the goal of the wheel is to deliver extra content as a length supplement... Sort of doesn't make sense to keep recording more when you're already at three and a half hours in a week. That's a solid chunk of time. So why not use the frozen donkey wheel as a backup when you don't deliver enough content instead. That is to say, if you were to do a recap podcast that somehow manages to go less than 108 minutes, you would have to spin the wheel as a way to supplement that shorter time period. This would create more of a balance between those monster-sized episodes and the less meaty ones. This can come into play after running the wheel through if you don't want to switch ideas halfway through. <laughs> you You underestimate our desire to switch things up. Uh, Elise continues, I think this method would be more beneficial to you guys in terms of avoiding burnout. Don't get me wrong. I'll listen to eight hours of content a week and won't complain, but I'd rather listen to three hours a week for the next 62 years than risk you guys collapsing halfway through a sprint. So hopefully switching less than 108 minutes to more than 108 minutes is a caveat you guys can get down with. Thank you for reigniting my passion for this show. Elise, thank you for giving us an idea that we can absolutely get down the hatch So moving forward, the frozen donkey wheel, which generates bonus content here on Down the Hatch, we are only going to spin this thing if we go under 108 (laughs) minutes. That's the rule change.
2: I mean, hot take here. This is going to be a weird prediction since we sort of manifest it. Probably won't happen until at least season two. I would say. I
1: hope so. I hope so. Listen, we are having a blast doing this podcast, but we're obviously going very long on these podcasts. I think at least for the early going, as we're establishing some takes on these characters, that's going to be the case. Right. We cannot burn out. We need to survive, live together, die alone, and all of that. So I think we're going to take this suggestion... The new promise is if we go under 108 minutes, there will be consequences. But I think we're going to be hitting close to two hours at the very least, almost every time for the foreseeable future. So we are going to graciously accept this suggestion. Please do not riot. Please do not at us about this. Uh, This is something that we wholeheartedly believe in and we believe will be the best way to get you the best content moving forward here on Down the Hatch.
2: Speaking of foreseeable future, Josh, what do we have coming up next?
1: All right, here's what we got coming
2: up next The Moth, uh, the Charlie Grace. When Charlie goes and does like a storytelling competition, right? Uh huh, that's right. <laughs> yeah,
1: he's got some comedy uh, coming our way in The Moth, a uh, very light episode of Lost. Coming up September 27th is when it is going to be dropping in your feed. Get us your feedback by September 24th in the morning, please. You can send that our way on Twitter, making sure you're tagging at post show recaps. I'm at Rand Howard. Mike is at A Bloom type. You can also email us. That is definitely our preference down the hatch at post show recaps. Dot .com. Subscribe if you have not done so already. Post slash down the hatch is our Apple feed, but you can find us on your podcast app of choice, your ratings and reviews greatly appreciated. Folks, 922, the 15-year anniversary of Lost. This Sunday, we certainly hope you will find some wonderful way of celebrating. We would like to hear how you celebrated Lost. Let us know uh, what your 922 celebration plans were uh, or will be as you are listening to this potentially, and we will talk about that in our recap of The Moth. Mike Bloom, what else is going on?
2: Uh, well, speaking of other island based shows, Survivor is barreling down like a gin into a Michael. And Josh and I had the privilege of going out to Fiji earlier this year. We have provided. Ample amounts of coverage in the form of my articles and Josh's podcast for Parade Magazine and Rob has a podcast, uh, respectively. So if you have not dived into that material yet, uh, it's a group of castaways to almost rival the Oceanic crew in terms of diversity in stories and excited personalities. So be sure to check all that out. At the time we're going to be talking next, Josh, the next podcast that releases is going to be post-Survivor premiere. So we'll be living on two different islands right now.
1: We will be indeed living on different islands, so make sure that you're following All of that coverage, we still got Succession coverage here on Post Show Recap. So if you're watching Succession, make sure you are listening to that podcast that Emily Fox and I are doing. And we are just around the corner from some new fall TV shows uh, or returning fall TV shows, I should say, some podcasts that are familiar to Post Show Recaps listeners uh, that will be returning in the near future. Our Walking Dead coverage is right around the bend. Uh, Our Mr. Robot coverage of the final season. Also right around the bend. Uh, If you are not currently catching back up on Mr. Robot, I recommend you do so complicated show. You're going to want to feel freshened up before the final season, or if you've never seen it, now's a great time to go and binge those three seasons. Antonio Mazzaro and I are going to be podcasting about that. Jessica Lee and I are going to be podcasting about the walking dead season 10. uh, When season 10 returns, they both return on the same night. So post-show recaps about to get very, very busy here in just a little while. As for Mike and I,
0: That's going to do it for today. Look around you. Look down the bar from you. At the faces that you see. Are you sure this is where you want to be? These are your friends. But are they real friends? Do they love you as much as me? Are you sure this is where you walk?